David Bird is an award-winning photographer and Photoshop artist. He's a husband and devoted father to two very young children. David has mastered many genres of photography, and in this episode, he allows us some insight into his newest endeavor, a boudoir photography brand, Legend, by David Bird. From his roots as a young child with a love for living in his imagination to owning several creatively successful photography businesses in three states, David takes us on a journey explaining how his roots in theater have helped him not only to photograph, but tell layered stories with his images. His unique ability to convey his vision to the models and artistic vision that utilizes performance to influence the storytelling of his final product truly make him one of a kind in a very saturated market of photographers. David shares his fears and anxieties about fatherhood, as well as the massive setbacks he's faced in the world of photography and what those setbacks have taught him about the profession and himself. This is Those Who Do Boudoir Photography with David Burt. Go with me on this for just a second. And I'll give you a little of this and a little of that and a little more of this. <laughs> Get off YouTube, you piece of shit. Have you seen this yet? Negative. Yeah, that's awesome, isn't it? It's like a, it's almost like a motorcycle club. Ooh, ooh, I like, I like. For uh, my, I got an early birthday present uh, yesterday. Jenny gave me uh, what my daughters are affectionately calling my Dean coat. Looks like a Dean Winchester jacket from Supernatural. Mm. Nice. <laughs> so like, you're Dean, you're Dean. I'm like, I wish I was Dean. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's his face was just on, um, I can't think of his name, the, one of the leads in that show. Either Jensen Ackles or Jared Padalecki? J- uh, Jensen Ackles, I think. He was on Smallville? Yeah, he Which played. One was the yeah, he, who did he play on Smallville? He played uh, uh, Green Arrow, maybe? Yeah. No. Oh, no, 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 no. He was in the, like the first season of Smallville, and then he was um, Lana's love interest, and then he left the show for Supernatural. Oh, I thought he played like one um, of the Justice League folks. No, that was a, a different dude. Oh, okay, okay. Different dude. Tall, blonde dude that uh, everybody can't help themselves, just like your vampire guy with his eyes. Um, <laughs> everybody can't help but love the dude. Yeah. I want, I want to, that's who I want to be someday. I want to be that guy. That, I mean, I know it's not realistic, but it'd be a lot cooler if it was. You know what? You never know what comes after this life. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be reincarnated as a snail. And somebody sure going to love snails. <laughs> it's got to be what it is. No, I straight up think that it's a possibility. I don't actually think this is what happens. At least I hope it isn't. Because then I would spend, this is probably what purgatory is. You When you die... You go into a room and there's like essentially like a Apple store attendant that just walks you around and is like, you know, what new life would you like? Because I have to believe that there are human beings at some point that have just had so much fucking shit (laughs) that they're like, you know what? I want to go back as a goddamn snail because like, that's it. Like I'm, I'm done. I'm not doing any shit. I'm just going to be a drop of rain. If you you get to pick, clearly this is my first run. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no this could be your origination you are this is your yeah. first go at it and then you know or previously i was a back. snail that was like I-, I want i want a life that's not much faster than this one <laughs> so here's here's what we're gonna ease ourselves into maybe oh, maybe God. there's some kind of punishment system like if you're like oh you really you've had it that badly so you want to be a snail okay when you come back though after the, somebody steps on you you gotta you know Oh, I guarantee you, my life is more than just anecdotal 
evidence that there is indeed a punishment system. (laughs) 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 Oh, okay. Do you got your coffee and everything? You good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, you comfy? Okay, awesome. Yeah, this is the better way to do this, I think. Yeah, I kind of forgot that when you're at altitude, uh, alcohol oh, affects you yeah, significantly yeah. differently. And I, I completely forgot about that. So yeah, yeah. I didn't, uh, to be honest, I don't think I drank that much. It was just it uh, between that and a little bit of anxiety and emotion and everything else by the time I, and then of course uh, my house is like six minutes from here. Oh, nice. And halfway home I'm tipsy and I'm like, I shouldn't be driving. And halfway home, I all of a sudden go, my God, what if I die? And then like anxiety just (laughs) ramped up. And I was like, so by the time I walked in the house, Bethany's like, okay. And I'm like, I am drunk and I have to go downstairs and die. (laughs) Sometimes, sometimes I'm like, what if I die? And I just get way calmer. (laughs) I'm just like, well, I guess it's out of my hands now. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, There you go. That's a nice way to uh, practice, practice mindfulness. uh, So so that everyone knows uh, David is in uh, Denver. You live in an Aurora, right? Yeah, yeah. Wayne's World. Wayne's World. No, that's in nice. Yeah, but uh, so see, so I I have not been in a situation in Colorado where I drank uh, more than like a beer or two. So it didn't like. I, what I will tell you is I have learned that altitude sickness is a real thing, and you have mm-hmm. to be real careful with your body mm-hmm. because it can make your body do weird stuff. Like mm-hmm. there's certain bodily functions you can't trust. When you have altitude mm-hmm. sickness, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. I get real dizzy at about anything above a 13er. Uh, when I get, we got up to the Alpine Lodge in Rocky Mountain and it was about close to 14. Uh, no, that's, I think that's 12. Like, so it must be above like a 10 or 11. That was at 12 yeah. and I was just dizzy. Like I was just yeah. like, oh God, I don't like it up here. I can't catch my breath. Well, I'm fat, but I also can't catch my breath and I don't like it up here. <laughs> um. When I was in high school, our technical director for the drama program, uh, he, he was very much like a surrogate father to a lot of folks. Uh, he would take a group of students to the mountains in Colorado over the summer for like a four-day excursion of, you know, what you carry with you is what you have kind of thing. Oh, God, that's um, terrifying. I mean, we, we rode Jeeps and went into the It was That's how I fell in love with these mountains. Yeah. And it was the most peaceful, tranquil experience of my life. You're camping out in, you know, in the wild and Maybe like doing what? old ghost. Why is that carrying a flat screen? Right? <laughs> <laughs> what I carry with me is what it takes. This is like 1993. But, oh, God, a 32-inch um, CRT. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. A very long extension cord. Um, and we would go, we would start, I mean, you were going to the to the mountains at, at probably 12, 13,000 feet, somewhere, probably 12. And then as we started going further and further up, our entry point was a town called Lake City. And then we would go up to Engineer Pass, Cinnamon Pass, uh, old ghost towns of, of mining camps. Sure. And like you could still, they would still have like old rusted bins of some of the rubble. And like you could pick up pieces of rock that had flecks of silver and so forth in it and gold. It just wasn't enough in it to justify right. keeping it. And we would climb like the third day, once we got acclimated, we would climb to a 14,000 foot peak Oof. called Hansen's Peak. And we would camp in the, in the, the, basin and then climb and it took you know three four hours to go up and then uh much less time to come down long story short yeah (laughs) very much less time very much less time um when we climbed uh there was a little bit of a i had a little bit of a 
near death experience because the last little leg of it, we went up through this little ravine on a sheer rock face, but there was like a, a you know, water had carved through the, the sheer face to let us go up this little channel. There was a what? And as come, a, come again one more time. There was a what carved? Uh, a channel. So okay. like I said, water did, did you say waterhead? No. I was like, David, you can't channel. say that. <laughs> no, 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 no. Word. Okay. Water channeled down uh, oh, okay, and made okay, a, okay. A, essentially a path for me to go up. And I, I was the last one to go up in the line and I slid and started sliding down and like would have fallen horribly. So I caught myself, everything's fine. Like I dug my arms into the side, so I tore the shit out of my arms and then got all the way to the top. So then I said, I'm not doing this. I'm not, I'm not going these crazy ways back down. There was a snowbank that went all the way down. And so I said, I'm just going to ride the snowbank. <laughs> and again, I have no knowledge of mountains. <laughs> and Jay, our, 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 the, our guide and our you know, surrogate down, so to speak, he's watching from down below. So he's like, you know, the size of a little tiny ant. And I see him running, doing this <laughs> like that. And I just take a leap and jump and slide all the way down. And it, it takes me the better part of like 30, 40 minutes to get down while the rest of the crew had to take a couple hours to walk down. <laughs> so when I get there, I'm so proud of myself and I'm walking to the campsite and he is furious <laughs> and is like, do you have any idea how stupid it is what you just did? And I said, no, I, I, you know, I hurt myself going up. So I just, I would come back down. And he said, first off, mountains are not perfect 45 degree angles <laughs> so that snow had packed up and you could have fallen through the snow and you would be dead by the time we found you and number two you just went down a thousand feet like that so good luck and a few hours later i was laying in a pickup truck holding myself going i want to die like it was so bad and i was so sick and they had had an experience like this uh years before when he was younger and they had to actually take somebody off the mountain in the middle of the night because he couldn't, he had the bends and he couldn't uh, process. And so they had to get him down. <laughs> you think he would have covered that with you prior? Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we, we, we went back in 2015 when we were much older. It was one, kind of one last hurrah because he had to have knee surgery and, and he wanted, he had worked hard for a year to lose some weight so that he could climb it one last time. Mm. And. When we were there at the same place, I pointed to a snowbank and I'm like, you could have educated, you know, a 17 year old <laughs> about physics. I was a physics child. And I know. I was like, dude, and I'm lucky to be alive and it's your fault if I would have died. And he was like, that's why I was freaking out. Because how am I going to tell your parents? Sorry. You know, you, anyway. I killed your baby. <laughs> yeah, my parents would have been. Uh, that's anyway. actually, uh, hey, that's a, that's a good way to move into how uh, we normally start these. All right. So sure. obviously anything that you do have done will do further on in your life is strongly informed by who you are as a person, which ergo is strongly informed by how you were raised, what your home life was like, what your hobbies were and stuff. So that's where we have to start. So we have to time travel a little bit and learn about little Davy, <laughs> little Davy back when he was five. Right. <laughs> So, so let's, let's talk a little bit and I always pick five. I don't know why I pick five. I think that's where a lot of people's formative memories begin is when they're about five years old. So, I mean, and I should preface this by saying David and I have known each other for 25 years. So uh, one, 
when I make fun of him, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Very okay. Two, We've been doing this since day one. Two, I'm sure he is going to say mean things to me later and it will balance out. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I find that sometimes when we're in the same room together, like if like when we've been at like uh, comic book conventions and stuff, doing photography or doing whatever we were doing there, we would start in on each other and people would be like, oh my God, these two, what are they? This is not okay. It's like, trust me, it's okay. We both give as well as we take. So <laughs> disclaimer. Joy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that joy of that awkward social situation where it happens so fast that the other people around are like, this is escalating rather quickly. Oh my gosh. Wow. Guys, calm down. And we're like, no, you don't understand. Like this, this is, you know, shorthand. Are we going to see a murder? I think we're going to see a murder. (laughs) (laughs) What's it like when an Ewok attacks a real human being? We're about to find out. (laughs) Nipchuck. (laughs) It's okay, Yubnub. Go back to the, go back and get a pretzel, Yubnub. Go, go, go. Ooh, pretzel. Uh, It's 2750, but they're wonderful. So soft. So not warm. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> no, Man. not at all. Not uh, at all. That's the first time I ever had a seven dollar uh, draft beer. Was at a uh, comic book convention. Yeah, yeah, uh, it wasn't worth it. <laughs> yeah, wasn't. No, I had to get a credit card to get some chicken tenders and fries. Oh. I was like, this is ridiculous. God, I had to sell <clears> a kidney. <throat> yeah. So that being said, now that that's out there, we know that later when things sound like they're getting bloody, they're really not. Uh, so D- David starts out five years old. Uh, you were born in Indiana. Right. Correct. Right. Yeah. In the bustling metropolis yes. known as Indiana. Uh, yeah. So, so Davy's born the youngest of how many? Uh, four. And how, what's the, what's the breakdown boys and girls? So uh, three boys, one girl. And the next one in line from me is nine years older than me. So when I was born, I was called a blessed event <laughs> by the our pastor of our town because and and partially so because my mother had a hell of a time having me and there was a period where right toward the end of her pregnancy they told her that you need to prepare uh, she had gotten blood transfusions and so forth that you need to prepare that the baby will not live more than a couple of years and that uh, will be horribly deformed and all these other things because there was all these issues that she had. I feel like you're I, just teasing me now. I feel no, like, no, 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 no. I feel like you're following up on what I just said and you're like, how bad will this get? <laughs> no, I, I, I generally like to be peaceful until provoked much like an Ewok. So, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like I'm cool. I'm one with your people. I'm just much taller. <laughs> However, uh, no. And so when, when I was born, it was a, it was a God because you know, this is the late seventies and, uh, imaging technology, all those kinds of things. They had no idea. Sure. And so my parents were literally preparing for a catastrophe, especially, you know, getting pregnant so late in their lives after having three kids. How, how old were they when you were born? 38. That's not that old, David. Well, but at the time, and especially think about it, they, they got married when they were 18. They had their first child when they were 21, I think. Sure. Um, and, or even 20. And, uh, the, the, their third child was nine years old. So right. to have a baby at 38, when like you're, you're done with all the baby stuff, like you've been done for a long time. You're preaching to the choir, so, David. You're preaching no, to the dude, choir. I, I have a beautiful two and a half year old boy and I have a six month old little girl that steals my heart and I'm 46 years old. So, uh, yeah, and, and talk about tired. Yeah. 
David, I have a seven-year-old daughter and my grandson spent the night last night. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. When I have grandkids, if God willing, I'm still alive and not a snail at that point, then uh, I will... I will commiserate as I'm, you know, sitting in the hospital getting a hip replaced. Um, so you know, when I was born and came out, everything was normal and fine, and and it was so I was a blessed event. But I was also sure. a mistake. My parents did not intend on having me. They worked at a glass factory, um, opposite shifts, because uh, that was like the major factory that had come to this little town, and so everybody got jobs there. But sure. they were also gospel singers. So they had records, they had a bus, my aunts and uncles, uh, they would go sing on the weekends and sing at different churches. And they were and, and very much true, they were in demand. They were called the Southern Gospel Singers. And churches would call and get a hold of them and they would go. And my father um, insisted that they don't get paid. The church could you know, make a donation, but he would he would not accept money. And so a lot of, you know, the, the old bus that they bought and publishing their records, it was all self-published. You know, they would have, my mother would make like 40 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches that they would eat over the weekend and like, you know, some potato chips and some fresh vegetables. That was it because they couldn't, they were funding most of this on their own. They would give the records away for free. Like their whole idea was that we're in service of God so that we, we can't accept profit. I don't know that um, I knew this. Uh, well, and so it, and it was, it was one that not only identified to all of us as children, how important religion was and organized Christian Western religion was to, to my upbringing and my family. But ultimately it set a tone with me that <clears throat> as a human being, not just to fulfill religious doctrine, but just as a good human being, like give more than you take and be be, don't be afraid to uh, what I, you know, what is called now in my, at least my industry of sweat equity. Don't be afraid to do hard work and donate it because that reciprocal will come at some point. You have to have faith and trust that it will. Um, which, you know, this was in the seventies. Now in this day and age, I, I don't have a lot of faith in the human society that they're going to reciprocate <laughs> kindly toward anything that is given Although to them. Although reciprocate, free. they'll reciprocate. Yeah. All right, <laughs> right, right. And I'll give you a little of this oh, yeah. and a little of that and a little yeah. more of this. Yeah. <laughs> is my house um, on fire? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and you've earned it because you're entitled. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you think you're entitled, you know, and you said earlier that you, you chose the age of five because that's like formative memories. And it's 100% true because I don't re really, I have one, one image in my mind that I can recall when I was four and a half years old, when we were leaving our house in Indiana to move to Texas, where my father had started his new career. Like you do in the seventies, he answered an ad in the paper that was to come to like the local you know, Best Western to meet a uh, man named Wayne Ahart who had started an insurance company in Texas and he was hired and they had just gotten the opportunity to start selling insurance in Indiana. So he was looking for agents to go door to door selling life insurance. And my father did it part time for a short amount of time, realized that it was something he was good at. And Wayne realized that too and started grooming my dad immediately and said, you know, you, you have a potential here. So I want you to move to Texas. I want you to start working full time and see where, you know, you, where you go over a few months. So we move the, the, my parents made the decision. The whole family moves. I have one vision of, we were told as kids to walk around the house to make sure that we hadn't left anything behind. 
and I had found this like piece of paper that was uh, all my memory is it was orange. It was probably just debris that flew in, you know, for the with the wind. But I proudly took it to my dad and said, I found something. And he like, oh, right on. Well, you know, make sure we don't lose this. And he put it into the U-Haul and and, and we went. And we, the U-Haul truck was called U-Haul It at the time. That was the original name of the company. And then they decided to drop the it. <laughs> my memories begin when I was five in Texas. So Also selfishly, that's like, I pick five because, uh, you know, I saw Return of the Jedi between four and five. And that is one of my first most vivid memories. So like, I'm like, well, obviously everybody else feels the same way, right? They all had a movie that they saw when they were four, between four and five, you know, cause it, but uh, 84. So yeah, I would have been four, but so I'm like, I'm going to, I need to pick up a, a touchstone and, and, and assume that everybody else has the same. Now I, I got button hooked on one because <laughs> one of my buddies was like, uh, yeah, I don't have any memories before I was seven. And I was like, oh cool is there a reason for that and then he dropped like a truth bomb on me about it was the most traumatic year of his life and i was right. like you're an asshole right, right, right. <laughs> he knew what he was doing yeah and i should have known what he was doing and he set me up for it and i lost but good oh, yeah. for good tv as they say you know? yeah absolutely and jedi is one that one of my earliest memories of seeing a movie was seeing jedi because mm -hmm. when we had moved uh we moved to texas when i was five and then i think we were there for a total of three years and then we moved to Iowa, which is what I would consider my home state because we'd lived there the longest. And I, it was the either late spring or early summer. We went to a small theater on the south side because it was the last theater in town that had one tiny little house, uh, one tiny little theater that had Jedi. And my dad, I'd seen it a hundred times, but one of the earliest memories I can recall of seeing a movie was going and seeing that with him. And watching it yet again, big popcorn, big pop, and you know, and just enjoying that that journey of Star Wars. So it's so funny that a lot of our identity of our age group is so much identified by Star Wars and when you saw it. Well, it was the very first movie I ever saw in an indoor theater. The first movie that I ever saw in a theater was, I believe, like Cheech and Chong up in smoke at a drive-in. <laughs> <laughs> like I remember having footy pajamas and like the, the there being like a blanket on the ground and like I've we went to sleep while my parents watched it and stuff. But it's just like, as far as like an actual formative movie, uh, that it would have been Jedi. And then right after that, Ghostbusters. And yeah. then um, Land Before Time, strangely. But that was pretty much my arc. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, laser guns, laser guns, <laughs> dinosaurs. <laughs> With laser guns. That's a movie. Well, that's a pitch. That was what they had that. You remember Dino Riders? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Where so, they were all the like bionic crap. And yeah, they yeah, could, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, speak to them like telepathically and shit. Yeah, yeah. So we just made a jest and joke, but that's probably straight up how some dude was like watching them before time and went, <laughs> what about laser beams? And then he was probably also watching Up in Smoke, <laughs> to be honest, to get there from there. <laughs> Up in Smoke was one of his formative films, <laughs> yes, which is yes. why he was, you know, run. anyway. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, did you did you see? So I saw Star Wars out of order. Because A New Hope, they were always showing on CBS for the CBS special presentation. Yeah. And so they would show it and you obviously you'd see it with commercials and stuff. They weren't showing uh, Empire. Mm. And then Jedi comes out and I'm like, oh my God, it's a new Star Wars. And people are like, you know, there's another one, right? Jedi. I was like, no, that it's, there's this one that we see on TV and then there's this new one. They're like, no, there's a whole story that happens in between these two movies. And I'm like, uh, really? And they're like, yeah, 
uh, Darth Vader's Luke Skywalker's dad. I'm like, you sons of bitches. <laughs> <laughs> like, I didn't see Empire until I was probably like nine or ten. Oh, wow. Because we didn't have cable. We were uh, broke as fuck. Gotcha. And we didn't get a VCR. I mean, my dad had a VCR, but like, you know how VHS came out really weird. Like it would be years after a movie came out mm-hmm. in the cinema before you could see a movie on VHS. And then all the different uh, production houses re- released them at different times and different ways. And and we would we had one. We started out with one movie rental place in town at the Regent Theater, which it re- the Regent Theater was a actual performance theater. Then it changed. They changed it over to a movie theater, and then they had a rental business in like the lobby and then they changed it back to a performance. So it's a performance theater now, but that's the first place you could go to rent. And like my aunt and uncle had a VCR and then my dad got one after them. And I mean, we're talking like with actual mechanical buttons and load Mm -hmm. from the top. And Mm -hmm. so we didn't really have anything that I could watch it on until after my folks split up, my folks split up when I was eight. So I didn't see empire until way after Jedi and way out of order. I mean, they were showing, I think actually the first time I saw Jedi might've been on HBO. Oh, wow. Now that, or, or not Jedi, sorry, uh, Empire. Empire. It might have been on HBO. Yeah. yeah. When it would have been partially scrambled probably because my, you know, my dad don't pay for <laughs> premium channels. <laughs> Steal them, some bitches. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. My, it had, had torrenting been a thing in 1982, my dad would be in prison. <laughs> he was always all about like, let's see how we can get this entertainment for free. Yeah. I, I knew I knew how to unscramble a cable channel by the time I was like nine. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Valuable, valuable tools. And again, it, it meant to a degree it was valuable back in the time yeah. for that kind of technology. You just leave it on the channel till the filter burns through. Right. And then once the filter burns through, you can tweak it through. I mean, what? Never yeah. mind. <laughs> Going on. This isn't about me, David. It's about you. Uh, so, so you get down to Texas. You're only there for about two years. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Whole family moves. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now your next, your next sibling, nine years older, is a brother, right? Yeah. And then sisters in between those two. So you've got a brother who's nine years older than you, which really doesn't do you a whole lot of good socially because you're not gonna. It's not like you're gonna meet people. You're you've now moved to your third state, and you're so you're probably about seven, eight years old, yep. right? Yep. You land in Iowa. Like what? What does that look like for you? You've you now moved to a third state in three years, basically. You've upended your life. Like how does little Davy? How does he? Has anybody ever called you Davy in your entire life? Uh, a few times, um, Davy Jones. Like they didn't live, but they called me Davy. <laughs> <laughs> when I was young, I imitated an Ewok and just poked them right in the nads with a spear. <laughs> he called me Davy once. <laughs> That's a movie I haven't seen in a long yeah, time. Johnny Dangerous, yeah. phenomenal film. So. Yeah. So what does that look like once you land in Iowa? And, and the only reason I'm, I'm picking on landing in Iowa is because it is your quote unquote home state. Yeah. And this is where you're going to start to develop into who you are, yeah. essentially. Yeah. So you land in Iowa. What does your life look like? What is your day to day? Your parents stayed together your whole life yeah. um, all the way up into and through your father's death. Yeah. So you had a, a traditional nuclear family, yeah. but your childhood was not, I wouldn't call it traditional because you, you had, your hobbies were very specific yeah. and, and your, in your life. So to tell us a little bit about that, about your childhood and how you interacted and in, in the things that you like to do. Well, so, I mean, the, my next brother in line being nine years older. Yeah. He, he, I didn't have a, a 
playmate, you know, built in in the family kind of thing. And my siblings, uh, we were all encouraged very much by my parents to be very close. My eldest brother, I, I don't really recall a lot of memories with him young when I was young because he started working for my father as soon as he got out of high school and built his career in that same industry. There's this great show series on Netflix called High Score. And it's uh, reviews video games, but but the history of video games from the perspective of not just consoles, but the arcades. And it's done by a, a documentary group called Great Big Story that they're actually now finished. They, they kind of set up with this goal to make a certain set of documentaries. And it is the most cinematic, moving documentary I've ever watched. And I, I watch it all the time. I rewatch it constantly because it's just, it's wonderful. And interviewing some of these people who have defined video games and, and created this entire industry. They interview uh, Yoshitaka Amano, who is an artist who created, he worked on um, Speed Racer and so forth in Japan. Then he created all the artwork for the original Final Fantasy and still to this day does. And in this show, High Score, when they interview him, he he essentially opens and says that he lives in a world of imagination. Like he he believes he's a part of that realm and not the realm of reality. And it it hit me like a truck the first time I heard it because it was the perfect way to identify very much my entire life until the past three or four years of <laughs> being like I I always lived in a world of make believe. So I didn't need friends. Like I could find you know, a smooth, polished rock from a river or creek and, you know, a really cool old stick. And that became my sword and power stone. And I just, I, I didn't need people around me. I constantly was either drawing or writing stories or creating stories and just living vicariously through my own imagination or then what, you know, external sources like Star Wars that would in, uh, inspire it and then make it want to go even further. So, when we moved to Iowa, I had a couple of friends that were like my one or two best friends, and that was it. I didn't care about being popular. I didn't. I didn't care about needing to fit in because it wasn't even a factor in my head. It was school, and being at school was to get the work done so I could go home and and create and play, and not to sit and play Nintendo because Nintendo didn't come out until what eighty six or eighty seven. And then when that happened, it was all over. Um, did, but, did you have an Atari? Uh, we did. We had a twenty six hundred, and I uh, I played Pac Man and um, Donkey Kong, I think. But the, you know, and the Atari was, of course, it was amazing until Nintendo came out. And I remember playing Super right. Mario Brothers for the first time in a stand up arcade at a bowling alley, and it was in Winterset, Iowa. And we drove down there because the bowling alley had a buffet, and they had a seafood night. And naturally, my parents were buffet <laughs> aficionados. Um, oh God. And so we went down there and of course I got as many chicken tenders and French fries and mac and cheese and, and mashed potatoes that I, uh, you know, for, uh, that I could eat. And then there was this game and I asked for a quarter and I played it and like, I just became mesmerized and like, that's all I wanted to do was to play Nintendo. And of course I built models and all that. I'm surprised you didn't grow up with trust issues as a child. If your parents are willing to take you to a seafood buffet at a bowling alley in Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, it was it was a buffet that had a bowling alley connected to it, so that was the idea. And and I and uh -huh. I'm pretty sure it still exists today. I don't know if the buffet still exists, but the bowling alley does. Oh, it makes me so nervous. <laughs> Seafood buffet in Iowa. Just that, that that fish has to come a long way unless it's catfish or walleye. <laughs> right, 
Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But no, I mean, so I didn't really need friends because my friends, they couldn't access the world that I lived in. And mm. I didn't need them to access it. I was quite fine on my own. Now, the friends that you did have, were they creatives? Were they, oh, yeah. did they like to make believe and stuff like that? Yeah. Um, one of my, my childhood friends that is the one that always pumps into my mind, my earliest childhood friend that I can recall, his name is Glenn. And we would go during the summer in Iowa, which now being a father, I, I've remarked to my wife a few times how incredibly dangerous it was <laughs> For us as children, because my parents would just be like, we would say, oh, we're going to the creek. That's like a 25 minute walk from the house. And my parents like, here's some snacks, go, you know, and have mm -hmm. fun. And we're climbing up and down 10 foot ravines and all this. Kind of, if I would have fallen and broken an arm, it would have taken ages. Well, actually, I did fall and break an arm when I was a kid, but it was right across the street, my parents' house. But anyway, um, yeah, we Glenn and I would draw Superman comics. We were really into the Transformers and Superman, and we would read comics, draw our own, write stories, and we would go on adventures into creeks and in the woods and find, you know, the the sort of power and all that kind of stuff. And and he was a person that lived in my world of make believe very easily because he had one of his own. I think that's important because, like, for me as a kid, I struggled to make friends because I, I was so anxious and I didn't want to go stay at people's houses and 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 the things that I was into weren't really the thing. And a lot of kids were into Star Wars, but not like into star wars you know like there, there was like i needed help i should have had an intervention <laughs> like like hey look man toys are cool video games are cool but you know what else is cool someday seeing a girl naked like you should probably set your sights <laughs> just a little bit higher on socializing because if you don't things are gonna get junior high is gonna be absolutely brutal and i and i didn't really have anybody i mean i had people that were they're into video games or they're into star Wars a little bit, but nobody who really had like the passion for it that I did. So, you know, and we grew up, we grew up in a weird time. Like it wasn't cool to be a nerd. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah. It wasn't cool to like, like you would get beat up and teased yeah. and like, and I'm like you kids, you emo brats now, like you have no idea. Yeah. Like you can find your people. Like every group has a group now. It didn't always used to be that way. Like, yeah. The kids that were stuck on the outside and on the fringe, when we were kids, like nobody would let them in. You know, I got chased home from school because I also had a smart mouth. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, I mean, that was my fault. Okay. Like, yeah. shut up. Just because you can make some people laugh doesn't mean other people will appreciate them shits. Okay. So you got to be careful. And I didn't know that. So it's important to, to have a people. And I think it's good that you did. I think that would be a super powerful thing to reinforce that creativity is a good thing. Because especially in Iowa, like to to be a creative was a weird place to live oh, yeah. when we were kids. Oh, like yeah. you know, I mean, a lot of kids were in band. A lot of kids did like choir and stuff. But you know, if you're a if you're a guy in choir, people would say things about you. You know, and. Um, they would make assertions, which now in 2024, I'm like, yeah, say whatever you want to say. I don't care. Like I'm comfortable enough. Like I will look at a dude and be like, that's a hot dude. Like I don't have that, but we weren't raised like that right. in Iowa. Right. You know, you didn't have the information to say, look, man, there's nothing wrong with any of this. So by, by insulating yourself with a people, it's, it's just such a powerful thing to have. We grew up in a really weird time. Yeah. Everybody had very strong opinions about what boys were supposed to be and what girls were supposed to be while still being incredibly insecure about themselves. Yeah. Like, 
stupid insecure. So did you find, what was your school life like then? Did you, did you find having those people was a safety net or were there issues? What was junior high like for you? The microcosm to me of what you're talking about, taking it, you know, a further focus to it was I had a, I use this, the, this term loosely, but I had a lot of friends and mm. we would, we would play, we would play ghost in the graveyard or you know, hide and seek and and mm-hmm. we would share what Transformers we'd gotten that week and that kind of thing. Even the popular kids were s- still into some of those things. They just also, mm-hmm. their imagination would take off on a football field or a baseball field. Mm-hmm. I had very mm-hmm. few friends. You know, I, I had friends that I would play Legos with and, and we'd you know, share our Transformers and maybe read a comic book or two. But to them, it was just this cool thing. I had very few friends that we could read the comic and we would sit down and as seven-year-olds and creatively talk about storylines and fan fiction, so to speak, of these characters mm-hmm. and then draw it or live it and and be in that realm of reality that, you know, Amano mentions in high score that was so impactful to me. Junior high, do you remember the, the 80s movie uh, License to Drive with Corey Feldman and Corey Haim? Unfortunately, I do because it was one of three movies I had on VHS that had been taped off of a movie channel. So I saw... License to Drive, and uh, them having Mercedes in their trunk mm-hmm. for, I probably saw it a hundred times. Mm-hmm. I don't need a BMW. I've mm-hmm. got a Mercedes. Like, mm-hmm. the movie was terrible. Mm-hmm. That, Inner Space, and uh, Star Wars A New Hope, on loop. On fucking loop. So, yes, David. Yes, I do remember License to Drive. So, two things then. Inner Space, I absolutely love that film. Yeah. Robert Picardo, it just steals that film immediately. And I, <laughs> I, I love watching it. And But no wonder, and, and I mean this sincerely, no wonder you are really good at comedy. Because Martin Short is hilarious in that film. Oh, he's and, really, really good and, at it. And, and yeah. such a great, like, physical comedic performer Anyway, License to Drive, Heather Graham was my first crush and kind of identified the archetype of what a a heterosexual female relationship that I wanted so badly was. Comatose in a trunk? No, no. The, 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 the performer, blonde and blue eyes. So my point, thank you. Uh, can I swear on your show? Yes, I can. Yes, Asshole. you can. Um, because... <laughs> I'm using this as a memory to answer your question. Okay. When I got to Sorry, junior you said, high. You said, you said groomed earlier, and now you're talking about how you, <laughs> your, your perfect female archetype is has been basically wow. roofied. Wow. And you and brought up trust issues with buffets and seafood at bowling alleys. Maybe I need to call my therapist. Can we go? Um, so anyway, when I got to junior high. I had watched movies like License to Drive that gave me the eye when I started understanding that I'm going to have to fit into a higher social uh, battleground here when I got into junior high. And I remember watching movies like License to Drive going, okay, well, you know, the underdogs in that movie, so to speak, can potentially win in the end, right? Um, I kind of thought that was a reality that maybe could happen. And I, the reason why I bring it up is because to me, I didn't like the idea of going, well, I'm an underdog and a nerd, so I've got to pretend to be somebody else. And there were a lot of 80s mm-hmm. movies that essentially told you that, mm-hmm. right? But then mm-hmm. would try to button it up at the end by saying, well, you essentially, Dorothy Gale, I don't have to go, if I want a world of, of make-believe, I don't have to go any further in my own backyard. 
Um, the hero is inside you all along. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so, but, but the, I, the identity that I locked onto or the path that I locked onto to navigate junior high was, I don't need to be anybody else. I just need to be me. And mm-hmm. if somebody's going to, and not, you know, if you're going to love me, love me for who I am. No, it was simply, I don't want to change, but I'm not going to go out of my way to, you know, shout from the rooftops, screw you. I'm not going to change either because that was just stupid. And I watched people be that. And I'm like, oh, you, sure. you care more about, you know, strutting your feathers than just being who you are and just living your life. And right. in junior high, no, it, it did not. I did not, you know, I didn't go to the mixers. I didn't go to those things. And not because screw it, you know, nobody wants to go with me. I just didn't care. Like right. I, but when friends would get together after school and hang out at the playground or whatever, like I would go and play and have a good time. And then leave early because I wanted to go home to play video games or write story. <laughs> the The video game Final Fantasy uh, came out when I was in junior high and, and in my eighth grade year. And I would play it. It was the first RPG that I ever played. I would play for two or three hours and then I would spend double that time writing a story of the characters that oh. I had and like flesh. So, you know, you go from one castle in the game to you know, you go from a town to the castle and you, and you defeat the first boss, right? I would write mm-hmm. the story of what happened as we went through the woods and these imps jumped out and blah, 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 blah. And the healer did this and the fire mage did that. Every bit of intellectual property that I could engage with, I used as a catalyst to just run and create stories. And Every intellectual in my property that I could indeed steal from. <laughs> <laughs> no, it just, it was a catalyst that inspired so many ideas and, and made sure. me want to just constantly create. And it reinforced to me that that world was not safer or anything like that at all. That world was more enjoyable than the world and the reality that I lived around. See, and, and I envy you because I so badly wanted to be accepted. Mm. Like I wanted girls to like me. I wanted the the popular people to think I was funny. I knew I wasn't like, I, I always like, I've lived my life this way. Uh, unfortunately, almost all 45 years of it. And that I will do these things where I'll like almost. So like seventh grade year, I went out for football almost, <laughs> you know, I got the Jersey and then I watched the video. They show you a video that talks about how uh, you might die. Like you, you could get a, weird fracture of your femur that will kill you. And I'm like, Oh, I don't want to do that. I bet that's not safe. I'm out. I'm out. In the interest of safety, I'm a smart person (laughs) and I understand science. So in the interest of safety, I will keep statistics instead because I, I think, you know, I have something to offer this world. Meanwhile, I was just scared. I was a scared, anxious kid. So that was kind of like, I would sort of be around the popular athletic kids, you know, but ultimately I was their bitch, you know, like, and, you know, I would talk to girls on the phone, but uh, I would never be like, Hey, I really like you, you know, because I'm like, Oh, she's going to stop talking to me. If she realizes that like, we're not, I don't want to just be, you know, so that never materialized until like my sophomore year in high school, like never even turned into like a possibility of a thing. You know, but I wanted it so bad. And so like, it would make me so uncomfortable and unhappy. And I would stress and agonize over like, oh, this girl, is she talking to me because she likes me? Or is she talking to me because she thinks I'm her shopping buddy? You know, and it's like, and, and because I would never make that step to like find out, I was just always nervous about it. Right. So to like be comfortable enough in your skin that you just look, I am enjoying the things that I'm doing and I'm going to continue to enjoy them. 
I'm very envious that you were able to live your life that way. And it's still something I can still learn to do today. You know, I, I feel like that's a lesson I could take from you even now is that, look, there are plenty of things I like to do. I just need to enjoy them and not worry about whether they're successful or productive or who cares uh, that other people think they're funny. If I'm laughing and having fun with it and it's not hurting anybody else, that should be enough. But that's always been a struggle for me. So I, I find it oddly comforting that someone with similar interests as a kid was able to take it the other way and just be like, look, man, this is my skin. I'm wearing it and I'm totally fine with that. I'm enjoying what I'm doing. If something else comes from it, that's great. That was a long way for me to get back around to like good on you. And I'm, I'm happy for you that 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 was your experience uh, because that should be everybody's and it's not. And so what I find fascinating is that you you just said something that I, I think is it, it, it means a lot to me and, I, and I, I appreciate it. But I also feel like I have to be to be honorable. I have to tell the truth that I have lived a majority of my life from that mindset of I don't care if my creative endeavors make money or not. What I wanted when I was a kid was, of course, again, to when I say kid, like single digits and then early double digits, I wanted to to live my world of make-believe. I wanted to go to Hollywood and be an actor because to me, that was the perfect way to take everything that was in my brain and put it out into the world. But mm -hmm. the impact is, I, growing up, I was a Star Wars and Star Trek fan. Go with me on this for just a second. So both of them, Star Wars was a story to me that was about adventure. These heroes going off to, to, to you know, vanquish the evil bad guy. And much to my parents' chagrin, I wanted to be Darth Vader. I did not want to be Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, didn't care. I wanted, because Vader, instantly as a kid, I was like, yeah, I was a little scared of him when he chokes the dude in the first, like, opening minutes. But And then I realized I was into that. Yeah. <laughs> So grooming into choking <laughs> like seafood buffets. <laughs> um, do you want to go get man. some seafood? <laughs> As I put I mean, on a yes, club. but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do too. Uh, so anyway, Star Wars was one where it was adventure and I and it was the perfect outlet for me to be able to live that fantasy in my head. Star Trek, I immediately saw as a ensemble group of actors telling these stories. And so it opened my idea that I could do this career as an actor and get to tell these stories that are like Star Wars. And I loved them both equally. But I knew early on when I was a kid, I knew that I wanted to be like George Lucas. I wanted to make a mark on the world. I knew very young that there was something special inside of my mind that I could offer and make an impact that would last well beyond my death. That was very much reinforced by my father that your modus operandi of life was you've got to go out there and make a mark on the world. His methodologies and the way to get to it was vastly different from mine, but that's something that I wanted. So I appreciate and, and, and I'm grateful that you see that uh, as who I am. But now I, ever since I got into photography, <laughs> um, you said to me just recently, you made a joke to me personally about nuking my career from orbit. <laughs> And, and I have done that a few times, which Aliens, great film. Uh, uh, it's the only, we, I say we take off and nuke the entire site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. Um, this installation has a substantial dollar value attached to it. They can bill me. That's the best. That and get away from her, you bitch. Um, <clears throat> uh, anyway, I have torpedoed my career and nuked it from orbit a couple of times because once I got into this industry... I got so paralyzed by anxiety and fear of the mentality that I cannot take a step forward toward any creative endeavor that I have. I would have the same 
passion and the same drive to do it, but I would not take the step because now it requires resources that we don't have. And my wife and I, and I have to be very careful how I take these steps. And I started my career in photography very boldly with all the confidence and inspiration in the world. I, I knew very little about photography, but I knew about cinematography. And to me, they were the same. They were just one little picture out of a moving story. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I saw the opportunity to make money in a career and I wanted to do that. And, and my, my intro to photography, I'm probably jumping ahead and I apologize, but my intro to photography was also my introduction to leaving corporate America. And the harder you worked, the more money you made, which was what my father did. And at the height of my first job, where I, I was a, a real estate photographer, you would, you would get assigned properties, you contact the agent, you set up the booking. During the summer, when we lived in Chicago when I had this job, we didn't shoot on Sundays because they would do open house. So from Monday to Saturday, I could shoot eight listings a day. And my average that I would make was about $45 a listing. So you can do the arithmetic. I was making amazing money as a photographer. And I became a preferred photographer by a lot of the agents because had that cinematic style and mm -hmm. I didn't know the rule of thirds or I didn't know how to categorize the idea of rule of thirds. I just did it. I didn't, I wasn't formally taught. So to me, I'm making all this money as a photographer. This is great. Let's start a business. And then the, I, I can pinpoint it. There was this single moment very early on in our career where there was this great opportunity where it was essentially a high volume opportunity of a lot of students coming in to get pictures potentially. And we were hurting for money. We had just moved, my wife and I. And I, I, I proudly told everybody, including my parents, this is, this is the it. This is my big break and we'll make the money and that'll propel the business forward. Mm -hmm. And, you know, projecting numbers up into the $100,000 mark. Mm -hmm. And we made 50 bucks. And I oh. lost that $50 because I paid kids to go around trying to bring in the students. It was a big... A drama convention and there was like 2,000 kids in the school at that one day mm -hmm. and I had so to you're, you're foreseeing headshots like you're just yeah 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 so they would they, okay, we set okay. up this big backdrop they would come in with you know whatever they because they were performing scenes it was state competition for mm -hmm. drama and they would come in and so they could get their eight by ten and we would print it and, and that kind of thing and hand it to them and again this you know digital photography was barely new at that point and mm -hmm. there was no cell phones did not have cameras in them um, sure. And I, I had to look, my parents showed up at the end of the day and my dad had this big smile on his face, like, let's go. And I had to tell him I made nothing. And I had right. to look at my wife and my wife is like the MVP straight up because that whole day she kept a smile on her face and was like, Hey, you know what? This is just a bump in the road. And like it, if, if Atlas was ever to drop the earth, that was the moment. And from that point on, it has been. I know there's other first world problems that are way beyond mine, but it has been murder to, to exist in my creative career because every time I take a step that's successful, I don't go confidence. Let's keep going. I go, thank God. And I have learned to try to use my confidence again of that world of creativity and imagination that I lived and loved so much. But now today I live a life where every step I take is so calculated to make sure it makes profit and money. I, I find it, it's very hard having anxiety, having these battle scars. It's very hard for me to do work now as a creative simply for the joy of it, 
because that little crappy voice in your head keeps telling me this is a colossal waste of your time. Your waste. You need to be at home with your kids. You need to be doing this. You need to be running ads. You need to be planning. You don't need to be having fun being creative. And I don't know how to get out of that. It's it's strange to me that you say that because I I wonder if you know the multiple times now that you have indeed. All joking aside, but kind of joking <laughs> that you have indeed nuked your career from orbit because you, I don't think, I don't think people, I don't think you're giving yourself due credit. People need to understand how ridiculously successful you have been. When you were living in Des Moines, you were doing a lot of work yes. for a lot of money. Yes. You, you really were. You were doing weddings. You were voted the best wedding photographer in Des Moines at least once. Was it twice? Okay. Which usually means you're pretty shitty. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not at all, right. clearly. Right. Right. You, you, were, you were charging a premium price for your services and people were paying it. You were not uh, overcharging because the, the, the supply and demand, basically consumer economics, right? People were paying a lot of money to have you come and capture their most important day, right? You were doing that and you were making a shitload of money. You were offered the option at one point of having a building purchased for you mm-hmm. that you were going to stay and you're going to stay in this line of work. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's strange to me that you say that y- you panic if you're only doing something for the fun of it. Because I also know that parts of that you were not enjoying. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which which is one of the reasons you. Yeah. Your business in Des Moines, because you could very easily be living in a million dollar house in Des Moines right now. So Full stop. Right. No, no issues. Like maybe even already paid off. Okay. Right. But that business, you're like, no. Nah, we're done here. I don't want to do weddings anymore. Um, I don't want to do senior photos. I want to go do something else. Mm. So to me, what that says in my professional psychological opinion. <laughs> but you have a lot of experience in that, a lot of training. Right, right, right. But still, uh, that what that says to me is that you weren't receiving the creative fulfillment you were searching for in that. Um, so it wasn't that you were doing all this fluffy creative stuff that you felt guilty because you weren't providing because it was quite the opposite. You were over providing. You were doing very well financially. But I think my opinion would be that you weren't fulfilled creatively. So you're like, hey, it's all or nothing. Drop the bomb on this. Let's move to Arizona and let's try something new down there, which you did. And you went down, you established uh, a market and uh, a client base and uh, a completely different direction because continually I'm like, David, take a fucking senior picture. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you, you want to pay your electricity? Take a fucking senior photo, David. If you want to, uh, if you want to buy a new car, do a wedding in Phoenix because you can charge a stupid amount of money and the lighting is great. Because <laughs> it's always on. Yeah, it's always on. You know, and you're just like, no, 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 that's not what I want to do. That's not what I want to do. I want to achieve this success in this area, in this um, market that is somewhat underutilized because you moved to cosplay and high fashion, stuff like that, that you yeah. weren't doing a whole lot of in Des Moines, right? So, that's my impression of, of what happened. So it's interesting to me to hear you talk about how you were feeling in your brain and heart because it's very different from outwardly what it looks like. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. So yeah. I've been a I've been blessed to be a teacher for a number of years now in photography, teaching right. both photography and Photoshop. I started mainly because of Photoshop, then felt the confidence like I've got something to offer in photography. And the conference that I taught at the most, I retired. My last year was 23, 2023. I chose not to reapply because I we moved to Denver. We had another kid and I'm pursuing a different genre. And I, as I told the students, and, and again, I say this not to be arrogant, it's just the truth. There were a couple hundred people that in over four days that came up to me and asked why I was leaving and you need to stay and all this stuff. And I kept telling them, I cannot honorably return and teach the same thing over and over again. I need to innovate or die, which is a motto and a mantra that I, I learned from a, a very successful photographer in our industry long ago, uh, who owns the conference that I taught at. Um, but I would tell them, I'm not going to come here and t well, specifically the owner of the conference, when I said I was quitting, told me in an email, don't you see the value of returning and sharing your journey as you go on this new genre and building a new business and so forth? You need to come and share this and teach it. And I said, I cannot honorably stand in front of a group of people and teach them things that I have not shown. I have not found my way forward through. And mm -hmm. there's a methodology in teaching where you just need to learn the first couple of steps and then you can turn around and teach that to the people behind you. And people make a lot of money being teachers that way. I despise mm -hmm. that. I People get into teaching for the money of it instead of the joy and helping others. <laughs> Noted. Zach's mediocre at everything. Zach should not teach anything. David will despise him. <laughs> so if you have a natural aptitude for something that you do, that's a different story to me. But one of the things that I taught for a very long time. And it's a lesson that, again, I have to lay the credit right at my wife's feet because she's very intelligent when it comes to the inner workings of some of these aspects, especially how my muddled brain makes my way through. There's an idea that I teach to people called perception of reality and that their perception of my reality is vastly different than what my actual reality is. And when it comes to running a business, I was, I was victim to this for years and, and very much frozen in fear because of this. I would look at my competitors in town and go, oh, they're making so much money. They're doing this. They're doing that. And then to come to find out, no, they're a month away from bankruptcy. I learned with powerful examples that perception of reality, oh, this person is you know, rubbing elbows with this other famous photographer. They must be in this. Oh, and I know that they, no, I don't know. And there's no way for me to empirically prove it, even if they tell me to my face, because half the time in business, they're lying <laughs> to protect yeah. you know, the brand. And half, that's adorable. Half, 90% <laughs> of the time they're lying. <laughs> and one of the steps that I boldly took early on in our career was I decided to do, again, it goes back to you give more than you get. I started being honest with our clients and saying, hey, we're hurting for business. And not, oh my gosh, we're, it sucks. I'm so depressed. And so sad. I would just say, I would, my hat in my hand say, I enthusiastically, we need more clients and I want to keep doing this work. Can you help us? Can you mm -hmm. tell people how much fun you had and all that? And it opened my mind to word of mouth and referral programs mm -hmm. in an honest way. Instead of if you bring in five people, you'll get a freeze. So, like I didn't care for any of that garbage. Right. So your perception of my reality, my dear friend is horribly, horribly wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> I love yes, it so much. <laughs> we, we won best of Iowa wedding photographer two years in a row. Do you know how we won it? Tell me you didn't do any sexual things to people. In a buffet at a bowling alley, but <laughs> they had Super Mario Brothers. There's a, there's a. Uh, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right. <laughs> you get uh, 30 free buffs against the disease you're about to get. Um, 
so buff, buffs video games buffs it's you know you, you buff oh, your character no, so no. That you, yeah that mm-hmm. yeah buffing yeah. grooming choking Whew, fluffing what re- continue <laughs> got to call my therapist all right so <laughs> we won that because you could uh, sign up for a very popular wedding website called uh wedding wire and the knot.com, K-N-O-T.com. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you paid a premium, which was, I think, like two grand for the year, which we didn't have. If you pay that, and then people send in reviews, whoever has the highest reviews becomes the mm-hmm. best wedding photographer in Iowa. My brilliant wife got on the horn with every single bride we'd photographed and pestered them to the point that we got the most reviews and became the best wedding photographer in Iowa, quote unquote. That's how we won. No. Right. So, so, so you won by people that you'd worked with that liked the experience, right? So, I'm right. not saying that that our work and hard work and and what we did is my a perception brand. is not as bad as you said no, it was. No, David. I agree. But you, you talk about a ridiculous amount of money. The most that we made in one year for our offer weddings, I think, was like eighty grand. That's a lot of money. I know, but here's the reality: <laughs> our studio cost us twenty five grand a year. And we were broke because we had infused all of our money into getting the business going, making horrible mistakes. So that year that we made the money, we barely paid ourselves like five grand. We, we could not keep up. So flashing forward to something you said about me, you know, stepping into cosplay and other things because I wasn't finding the creative fulfillment. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely correct because I did not approach photography from the benign, let's take your portrait. I've, Mm-hmm. approached immediately by storytelling. The work that I was doing was uh, one of our original brand mottos was you are unique and so are we. And that was how we captured brides uh, at wedding shows and things of that nature to to book and convert. Everything that I did was was different and, uni- and unique and I was pushing the envelope and again I don't mean this to be arrogant but I have the visual evidence and no history. One of the key factors that people in my industry when you get together at a conference and, and start talking and sharing battle scars everybody's experienced this. I had countless people of varying you know whether it's high school senior photography, weddings, mainly the high school seniors where this came from the most. I was doing all this creative work and I loved it. And I was constantly innovating on our day off. I would still go into the studio and teach myself Photoshop and was learning and expanding. I would have countless people come to me and say, high school seniors, my, my kid wants to come to you so bad. They love your work. We love it. We think it's amazing. So-and-so that did it last year was amazing. We want to do the same thing, but we have to go to your competitor in town because my kid is a part of an a group organization at the school and our competitor did this wonderfully horrific marketing idea. He got the contract to photograph all one eight by 10 of each of these kids that were in the national youth leadership council or, or merit society or something like that. I can't remember the name of it. So as a part of being in that program, you had to get one picture taken from him that would be displayed at the school. But the way that he worded it and the way they worded it was you have to get your senior pictures taken by him. So these kids would go there and he wasn't even the photographer. It was a chain that started in Northern Iowa and he had a staff of photographers. Was it Life Touch? No, 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 no. Oh, 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 okay. He had a staff of photographers. They took the most banal, benign, crappy photos. They charged triple time what we charged. 
Everybody say pickle. Uh-huh. Pretty much. <laughs> um, young young girls laying on the ground with their, their knees bent. And, yep. And doing that. Yep. Yeah. The <laughs> yep. little, the, yep. A picture you would take for an eight-year-old girl, not, yeah. not an 18-year-old. Boys doing the Captain Morgan pose on a chair and their suit. <laughs> yep. So they would come to us and say, we've already <sighs> spent three grand and my kid hates every photo. Doesn't like them. Can you cut us a deal? After a while, when you have to keep saying to people, no, I can barely afford to pay myself. I wouldn't say that to them, obviously, because you have to lie right. to protect the brand. <laughs> right. I'm so busy. I cannot afford. We would tell to, them, you know, we, yeah. we would love to photograph your kid. And, and I'm so sorry that you went to our competitor and spent that much money. Our pricing starts at X. Right. And some would engage, some would not, and just make their kid deal with the crappy photos that they bought. Parents would tell us we didn't even want to go. We hated it, but we had to. What did they think was binding them there? What did they think they had they had signed? Their kid being a part of this program would not have their picture at the school. And they had a display in the mall. So their okay. kid would not have this milestone if they did not get their senior pictures taken by our competitor. And no matter how much we told them, that is not true. You That's can go so there and weird, get yeah. one picture taken by this person right. and then come to my studio. They, they Nope, because they, they wouldn't screw with the system. So weird. It is. And imagine how deflating <laughs> it is to a young business owner who's driven by creativity, knows nothing about business and learned on the job painfully. And at that time in my industry, there wasn't a lot of education that the way it was accessible, the way it's accessible now. The education was to go to a conference and the conference, the teachers... Were designed, they would design their curriculum to teach you 25% of what you needed to know and then just drip you into every single workshop they did. And you would spend a fortune before you actually mm -hmm. learned what you need. The man that I used to work for in our industry who owns the conference that I used to teach at, there's a, a, a teaching program, I think it's still around now, called Creative Live. And they, they, they innovated and they would have live broadcasts Mm -hmm. bringing in these very talented people and you could watch for free live. If you wanted to download the videos, download all these supporting PDFs and all that kind of stuff, then you paid $99 and you got like two days worth of content that was focused, great content. And my previous boss that I you know, teaching for it at, at his conference, he did a creative live and 100% shattered the educational industry because he went out there and he was like, not only was he wonderfully a wonderful teacher, he was a male photographer that went out and was like, he taught you how to photograph uh, tight, middle, wide. Is a, you do a tight shot and then a medium shot and then a big shot. Both as landscape and portrait, move on. And I'm shooting 30, 40 frames uh, tight, close up right. headshots, right? Before I would even move the kid or right. move the bride. And so, 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 now, so now that like cameras have like... 7,000 megapixels. It's like, just shoot the wide and move. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. I mean, because you can get in there. Like, I went, it, I, and to the, I use a Canon R5 with an RF 24 to 70 f2.8 lens. And when I shoot big, full body shots, especially yeah. for cosplay, I can yeah. zoom in and I'm like, my mm -hmm. gosh, I can see the horrible pores on your face. Even though I took a full body shot, even the oh, yeah. R with a kit lens yep. could bring, could get you in there now. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 insane. We're, I'm gonna we're gonna bore the shit out of people for a minute, but like the the advances in technology from when we were both shooting with a 50D <laughs> <laughs> and everything was in soft focus 
all of the time yeah, <laughs> because yeah. you had that you couldn't there's nothing else you could do it just it just wasn't the technology wasn't there were great photos then but if you go back like i've been pulling into to uh, submit to like shutterstock and adobe stock mm-hmm. i'm pulling some of those photos and i'm like man i remember taking this picture and thinking how awesome it was and like i can't see any detail here yeah like, technologically it wasn't happening then and now you i pull out my canon r and i shoot a picture that like i everything isn't even right. And I'm like, ah, I can sell that. So, so in the, <laughs> of course you can, Mr. Yeah. I, I pirated HBO when I was six. Um, <laughs> so the key to that, and this is something that is a, a very important uh, thing to me right now in our day and age of technology, we are jumping all over the place. So when I was five, the, the key to that, <laughs> well, I mean, is, to be fair, that was like 45 minutes ago, <laughs> right? Um, is AI, the AI in the Canon cameras, <laughs> yeah. all the cameras now, yeah. Because at 50D, you had to move the focus field. And mm. the further you moved away from center, even if you locked on perfectly, the, the, the sensor, the lens, they just could not communicate. It was going to naturally be, be blurry. And people mm. would refocus. So they'd lock on critically in the center and then move the camera. The moment you do, it's out of focus. Now, AI finds their eye. And there you go, a moving car going 120 miles an hour. And the Canon locks onto it and shoots 30 frames a second. And just, they're all perfectly in focus. When people now complain AI is destroying the world and so forth, you know, with one respect, with AI technology, how the the AI was trained is wrong, in my opinion. The, again, as an artist, you put something out on the information superhighway. Yes, you have to accept that it's going to, your loss of control is, is absolute. So these companies just put it into their machine learning. And now you can type in to, you know, mid journey. I want the art in this style, this artist and yada, yada. And it replicates a pretty good. And I just saw an image this morning from a AI artist that I, it is the first image that 100% looks real and it, wow. it's all AI generated. You know, a lot of them I can tell. Yeah. Like they look real as hell, but you can still just tell. Yeah. The lighting um, and everything else. But this yeah, one, yeah. this one looked like, real. And I was like. Just a little too shiny. Yeah. A little too shiny a lot yeah. of times. Yeah. So I, yes, I, I was lacking going back. I was very much lacking affirmation of my creativity. What I wanted in the beginning of my career was people to be excited to come to our studio because they wanted art from us and they wanted the experience from us. And instead, they would come to us with this monkey on their back that they had made a poor decision, and now they're coming to us. We, we were blessed, though, because for every loss, there was a win right after it, which you can either see glass half full, half empty. Mm-hmm. It kept us going. But imagine that mental brutality of you get a win, you couldn't trust it. Did you find, the, though, the people that did decide to spend we're excited about being there. We're excited about working with you. We're excited about the experience. Correct. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there was a, there was a kid there. Were, we had some really great examples of that, but there was a kid that I will never forget. Single dad, beautiful young lady. And they came from two hours away to have their senior pictures taken twice Two, they wanted two different sessions and two different, oh, they wanted a fall session and summer session. And each time dad spent probably $2,500, $3,000. It was our highest Mm. ever sale. And dad was a a mechanic. Dad had been saving since this girl was pretty much conceived to be able to do this. And it was the most rewarding. And like, and my wonderful wife, and just go with me on this for a second. All along the process, my nature of giving, I kept wanting to give dad free product. And Bethany kept saying no. And not because she's a miser. She kept saying, if you do this, 
and you take away the joy, you are robbing them of the joy that dad has been building up, the joy of this experience. Yes, some people want to go to Disneyland, and if they were approached at Disneyland by Walt Disney, one, he's dead, so that would be horrifying. So they're they're approached <laughs> by Mickey Mouse and says, Mickey's going to give you the VIP pack and you can go everywhere. Wow, what a great Disney vacation, yada, yada, yada. Yes, there is some intrinsic value of that 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 winning the lottery, so to speak, being given mm-hmm. to you. But more often than not in business, I've encountered people will feel good to pay for what they want to pay for when they've convinced themselves they're ready to pay for it and ready to engage in it. And they would engage in it and pay us, but begrudgingly because they had made bad decisions elsewhere and wanted us mm-hmm. to take the slack for it. And it hurts. It, and not emotionally, like it hurt our business badly. Right. And when, when Dream State closed its doors and I took the sticker off that door, it was one of the hardest moments of my life because I did it in defeat. And my last social media post for Dream State was the last high school senior we photographed. And I, I posted it making, and I, it was a warning to, to clients saying, you have to value the artwork. You have to value the experience. And you're being lured in by good business practice, which is act now, hurry now, buy now, and I'm going to lure you in with that, but give you substandard work, but you are convincing yourself that it's worth it because you saved some dollars. But these are memories that will last a lifetime. And do you want to, when your daughter has her own daughter and you come home after that event and look at the picture above the fireplace when your daughter was a young girl, do you want to see her sitting there like a little cherub eight-year-old because that crappy (laughs) photographer took a shit photo because they aren't creative, but you got a great deal on that picture? Like, no. Senior photos are so weird to me because one, they're one of my favorite things to do Mm. because I love showing up as just a guy, Mm. just a regular guy, like not a quote-unquote artsy guy. I Mm. show up and up freaking hoodie and a pair of jeans and a pair of tennis kicks. And like, I can take a picture of a dude. I can take a picture of a girl. I can make the girl feel super pretty. I can make the dude feel like, Oh God, he's not going to try to touch me in a bad way. You know, <laughs> I can do whatever I, I, I need to do. And, and there, and it's fun because I can joke around with them. I can, I can swear and make them be like, Oh, he's treating me like an adult, yep. you know? Yep. And, and I really enjoy the process. What I don't understand about senior photos is why people are willing to pay so much money for them. It's stupid because odds are what's going to end up happening with that entire shoot that they, they pay all this money for is probably two thirds of those photos are going to end up in a drawer somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to put one picture on the wall. Well, the, the first they'll get them all and they'll put them up everywhere and they'll put them on social media and everything. Eventually what's going to end up happening is one photo is going to be on the wall. You know, it's not like a wedding where, you know, your wedding photos are somewhere forever for the rest of your life. Um, you know, uh, senior photos, especially now, like when we were kids, senior photos were a huge deal, mm-hmm. you know, because like your parents would leave them out forever. But that's not what happens now. And you take phenomenal photos. I take pretty good photos. Like, you know, so I, I like to think that my photos are worthy of the quality of being displayed right let me jump in on that let me jump in on that real quick you take cinematic work because of your your natural aptitude toward performance you take cinematic work you don't take portraits you and i'm not blowing sunshine you create art you take cinematic pictures oh well thank you you're welcome you're welcome i i i guess i just for me it's like i enjoy the process so i don't really give it that much thought yeah. As to, you know, what, whatever, but I, I, I find it cathartic to, to photograph. And so I enjoy it, but I, I don't understand the amount of money that people are willing to spend and that they are willing to 
trust in people that are sketchy. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like these, mm -hmm. these other companies that are, it's all about marketing and stuff for a photo that is most likely going to end up in a drawer. So it's, it's that weird juxtaposition of, I really like it. I like charging money for it. I like getting paid for it. I like the process. I like, I enjoy this, the seniors. I win that uh, when I'm fortunate enough that, for that to happen. Cause clearly it's a hobby for me, but it's just such a weird conundrum, you know, because like high school is that time in your, in most people's lives where it's the most important part of their life until it's over and then it didn't matter if you're a normal human being yeah if you're a jock that ends up selling cars for your uncle then it's still the most important part of your life for the rest <laughs> of your life but you know uh, in the grand scheme of things the importance of it law diminishing return like the further you get away from it the less important it was and so those photos the amount of money some of these places are charging and that people are willing to pay is kind of crazy to me it would be better Honestly, more productive, I feel like for if you're if you're if you're a photography company and you're going to be long haul, if you charge a little less and get more people, mm -hmm. you know, which is but it's just insane that these people are getting fleeced for like three grand for senior photos. Obviously not from you. I'm talking about these other companies that no, I know, I know. do the weird Thank shit, you. you know, they're getting fleeced for this $3,000 for something that ultimately, you know, they're having a bad experience. They're having bad quality and it's going to go in a drawer. Hey, there you are. No. Oh, you can't hear me. Hold on. Wait, now you're back. Oh, what happened? You, you lagged big time. And then when oh, you came okay. back, you were quiet. Oh, okay. Well, what's important is uh, they heard me on this side. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fine. It's direct. It's direct right. here. <laughs> Am I your guest or are you the guest today? I'm just uh, curious. Fuck, don't. I'm just God playing. It, I'm just playing, dude. No, because this is a good conversation. And and yeah. and I told you I didn't want to do this, you know, a while ago when you, you brought this up because I'm like, I'm not famous. But when I thought if I share this on my social media and so forth, the people who do follow me in my industry, there's good you know, a good conversation here about my work or about this industry. And you're a little famous. I mean, I'm not David. famous. A little bit. No. A little bit. No. People your know your perception of my reality, again, is vastly different <laughs> from my reality. Okay. Well, I tell you what, you go into your circles, your photography circles, and ask people like, hey, who's David Bird? Oh. They're going to be able to answer you. Sure. If you go into a podcast circle and they're like, who is Zach Barkley? You're going to be like, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Then yes, in my industry, but, but a small section of it, people are going to know the name Peter Hurley before they're going to know the name David Bird. You just made that name up. That's no, Peter person. Hurley is a fashion photographer in New York, but the last conference I taught at, I can't, I, I, we were told not to under contract to disclose the numbers, but I was in the, I'm holding up a set of numbers mm -hmm. on my hands. And since I have 10 fingers, you can, I was between one and 10 ranked out of 80 teachers. And that particular person was ranked. Wow. Yeah. So, so I mean, so David, I, okay. You know what the, you know what the good news is? I can disclose the numbers. <laughs> That's, <laughs> fine with me. That's fine with me. I, I didn't, I just made hand gestures. That's all. I, I, I open palm slap somebody. So here's what I would say, uh, without, if David, were to try to flip someone off in public, he would hold up this many fingers and tell you to read the one in the middle. <laughs> that would give you an idea of what he was trying to show me. I can't <laughs> oh my God, does that hurt? It really does because I'm holding my index and ring finger down just, to, ow, it's hurting my hand when, right da here. when David flips the bird, it is impossible for him to completely extend his middle finger without his other fingers coming up and doing this weird little like yeah. this thing. Like it's just, it's bizarre. I don't know whatever happened to him. What injury is that the one you broke? 
<laughs> arm I know it's this one. What and, oh, I have no idea why. why that, I don't know. I don't know. We, we are totally off the rails. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but no, I mean, I think, and, and maybe famous isn't the right word. Notable, having an amount of notoriety, certainly having a knowledge base and being a, an expert in your field, I think is very fair, which is what this show is about. People who have amount of knowledge or interest in something that other people don't necessarily have and learning about that. And I think where you really bring your expertise is being a business owner, being a creative, being an instructor, being an award winner, because on top of that, your work has been recognized for its quality and for its originality. And I mean, I, I don't think it would be, I don't think it would be stupid. And I, uh, this is anecdotal. Like I'm just off the top of my head. I would say it could be argued pretty easily that you're one of the top 10 Photoshop artists in the United States. I, I, I think that just looking at the quality of work, knowing that you're teaching, knowing uh, uh, what you have built on your own, as far as creating plugins and, I mean, I use David's frequency separation plugin on every project I work on because I'm lazy, right? So all I have to do is hit play and then it'll send me to the median filter. And then I'm like, yes, at eight (laughs) and then play again. And now I can go in and manipulate the image within that plugin. And it just saves me so much time to not have to build all these layers myself. And it is so effortless and allows for me to spend more time on creativity. So, so for someone to be able to create that, and it's a unique filter, because I've also seen other frequency separation filters that use different filters. They use a different process. They, it's not as fine tuned. And for you to be able to build that, that shows a certain amount of expertise. So when you say, you know, oh, I don't want to talk to you on the show because I'm not what you're saying. You're full of shit and you just need to suck it up and move on. Wow. So, okay, then. <laughs> well, <laughs> that being said, I mean, really, you are. I mean, for someone to go to a photography conference in front of thousands of people and be recognized in the hallway, pretty pretty big deal. I'll be honest. I mean, and I don't say this again, arrogantly and so forth. It'd actually be, and I, for I the mean, first time ever, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, it is, uh, at this stage of my life, it's one of the aspects, a memory that the first time it happened, I, I, we were, my wife and I at the conference that I taught at, I think this is my third year teaching my second year but it was after I had won the Grand Imaging Award from the conference. So I'd won it the previous year and then that conference the next year. We were in our hotel room. She was writing down a database of information from cards I collected in my class. And we were having a quick lunch in the room of salad. And on the main vendor drag of the entire hall, they have, they were selling food. The hotel was selling food. So I said, I'll run out and get some chicken tenders. We'll throw it into our salad. And she said, let me go. This is too healthy. This is too healthy. And I want to unhealthy it. Pretty pretty much. Pretty much. And she said, let me go get it. And I said, no, I got it. And she said, you're going to get stopped. And I was like, I'm not famous. The, the walk (laughs) dummy. Once I went out the, the door from the hotel rooms to the main vendor floor, it should have taken me no more than 10 minutes to walk over, get the chicken tenders and go back. (laughs) It took me an hour because again, my father taught me this, you, you give of yourself and be of service to others. People lined up and, and I didn't, I didn't be like, oh, I'm here, you know, come talk to me, whatever. I was, right, right. I'm in it for the chicken, right? And <laughs> people lined up 
and are asking me a question. And and I I would talk to them and not, oh yeah, you know, let's talk offline or you should sign up for my workshop. I would deep dive with every person because that was my job. I was a teacher and I, being a student at that conference, I wanted to inspire people. And it's fun. It's fucking fun. No, it's not. It, bullshit. It is because I've been there. Okay. But it's not to me. Oh, that's too bad, man. No, you need, to, you it, need to enjoy that a, shit. It's a good feeling to know that I've helped people. Absolutely. But being a teacher, and again, for anybody that follows me that listens to this, this is one of the reasons why I had to step away. Because when you become a teacher and you care about the person in front of you, you don't see them as a meal ticket. Or you don't see your own ego first. Oh, they're walking up to talk to me. I'm so important. Yes, next. They're walking up to talk to me. I'm so important. No. You take on their their troubles. You take on their worries. I do. And in my yeah. head, I feel like I'm responsible because some of these people will come up to me with their hat in their hand saying, save me. I'm three months away from bankruptcy. And I would sit down with them and spend 20 minutes going, you got to do this and that and yada, yada. And then they're so elated and they're going home and excited. And I'm walking away like a nervous parent going, my God, if it doesn't work, I'm responsible. Well, that's that's your bullshit, though. That's yes. your oh, straight up, straight yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, like so it can be. But that's what I'm saying is it can be fun. What are you at your at your core, David? What are you human? An artist? Oh no, no, you're not human. An artist. That's what I was going for. You're, 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 you're a creative. Right? Oh shit! They all know and, now. <laughs> and before, before you were just simply a creative. You were an artist, a actor, actor you're an actor, performer. Yeah, you're a performer, right? Yeah. What is more fun than having an engaged fucking audience, David? That's so, all they are. But they're just an audience. But even in the theater, and again, I don't mean this to be arrogant, but I, I, I have vivid memories of a few times in performances where I could hear a pen drop in the house. And as an actor, mm -hmm. I never subscribed to, to the Meisner method. I never subscribed to the fourth wall. I was aware of that audience the entire time because I was there to mm -hmm. entertain them. When I would get done with the show and then, you know, you, you go up into the lobby or whatever as you're trying to leave and people come, oh my gosh, your performance was amazing. Yada, yada. I was uncomfortable. I would tell them every time oh, I would tell them, you That's know, I'm so glad you enjoyed the show. Thank you so much for coming and spending money on it so we can do more shows. <laughs> but like, I, I, it would make me nervous and not like, oh, you know, give me notes or whatever, or, oh, thank you, my adoring fan. Like, no, I wanted to be left alone because I had done my job and I wanted to just go oh. and be me again and not have to accept the praise. And not because I didn't believe in it. I knew I was very good at what I did. And I know I'm a great teacher. I know I'm a great photographer. I'm a great Photoshop artist. I know this. I don't wake up every day and remind myself of this. I just do. <laughs> like, like going back to being a kid, I just wanted to create. I wanted to live in the world of make-believe. I didn't need approval. I didn't need praise. I just wanted, I, it, none of that was important to me. Doing the work was what I wanted to do. People at conferences, again, I'm very fortunate and blessed for it. They come up and they, they tears in their eyes and all that. God, I sound like, never mind. They would come up to me and say essentially how much a difference I had made for them. And I would reach out and honestly tell them, I didn't do anything for you. All I did was give you permission to do what you already knew you should have done. And I would tell people that more often than not because that was true. People would come up, I can't tell you how many times people go, hey, David, could I just have five minutes of your time? Absolutely. Okay, I'm thinking about doing this, this marketing strategy, this step, systematically I do this, I'm going to photograph this, and yada, yada, what do you think? And I would tell them, I think it's amazing. Fine tune this and this, and there you go. And they would say, David Berg gave me this amazing path to follow and all this business in a can and ideas. And I'm like, you came up and told me. 
All I did was give you permission. <laughs> now I'm starting to understand why you keep nuking businesses, David. <laughs> like, Jesus. <laughs> you just be like, well, thank you. I appreciate that. And move the fuck on, man. <laughs> well, and, like, and again, some of my some of my betters in the educational world have pretty much said the same thing to me. Do you realize how much money you're leaving on the table? When they walk up, David Burke could have five minutes of your time. Absolutely. And then give them 25% of what they need to know. And I would look at those people and say, mm -hmm. fuck you. Like, no, you're a predator. You're, these people have enough money to run their business for six months and you're going to take it from them to, to drip the education to them? Forget it. And that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is enjoy that moment. Oh. Like, just enjoy the moment and be like, yeah. Oh, hey, I'm glad I could help. You know what I mean? Like, hey, I'm glad I could be here. And this interaction, this human interaction that we're having is probably helping them and you just as much. This, this human, this, this, this communicative interaction that you're having. Yes. When, when you're at a, a place that everyone has a shared uh, goal, has a shared interest, yeah. um, and you, you're, say, for example, you're a teacher there at that. It, it, that interaction, and I, God, I've beat your head against the wall on this so many times. I know. That shared know. interaction is part of what they're paying for. That's I'm, part of the, their experience. And we are like a married couple. <laughs> in that we are so incredibly different and that's the only reason our friendship works. I agree. In that, in that, you know, you, you do it for the art and I'm a normal person. Sure. The, sure. the you know, you, you do, you do it for the art, um, but, but what you have to recognize is from a business standpoint, you, you also have to in, embrace the other parts of the, you know what, talking to this person isn't so bad. Matter so, of fact, I might actually learn. I might, I might actually meet a meet a person here, and I might have fun in this conversation. Those are the moments I look forward to. That's why I miss stand up. Like I miss being on stage, but I miss after the show. Yeah, and not the you were so funny, but it's like who am I going to meet tonight? Like gotcha. what kind of weirdo am I going to bump into out there that I'm going to have a story about later? What kind of interaction is going to happen? It used to be when I was single. Who am I going home with? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was very different, but you know what I mean? But like, for me, it was always like, I like these interactions and it's not because they're, they're stroking my ego. It's because this is how I interact with people. This is how I get to, to meet a new person and have a new experience. And if they happen to gain something from that, that's awesome. But you are more like, okay, I, I'm out of gas right now. I already did my instruction. I had my interaction. I want to go eat my chicken tenders. I want to go back to the room. I don't want to have to 100% be, it's almost like it makes you uncomfortable. The, the adoration, the acknowledgement in person of what you've done. It's like, you're like, I don't want to do all that. I just want to do the instruction. It's like, David, let's have a mixer the night before I will pay for every one of their drinks. No, I don't want to do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> you don't want to do that. I was like, I promise you, I promise you it will, it will, it will turn out okay. And that's what I was going to jump in to say was to, to, you know, tell everybody that essentially one of the last workshops that I was planning that I did, you encouraged me to have the, the mixer the night before. Mm -hmm. And you flat out told me that the reason why was because people would enjoy and want to come and have a chance to sit and talk to me and have a drink with me. And I 100% oil and water. I'm like, absolutely not. To clarify, you said something, but you know, I, I wonder the teaching can be done and go get my chicken fingers and have my salad. It isn't that I don't want to be bothered. I, I would stay after every class. And I used to say, one of the conferences I taught at, the first day when the organizer was telling the crowd how things are going to work and once the class was done, 
he was talking up the party, you know, and then we'll be in the lobby and we're going to do this and that. And then he mm-hmm. went to one teacher, where are you going to be? I'm going to be down there at the lobby, yada, yada, yada. He turned to me and said, what are you going to be doing? And I said, I will be right back here in this classroom teaching. So if you want to come up and learn Photoshop after hours, I'm not, you know, I, it, this is off my docket of contractual obligation. I'll be here teaching. When at the conference that I taught at, the bigger conference, some of my betters, I mean, this with respect to them, but it's true. Once they're done teaching, they go and ensconce themselves on their private table with all the fancy bigwig teachers because they're there all excited to be, you know, oh, I'm talking to famous. I'm famous. Oh, we're all famous. I'm out there (laughs) working. I'm out there helping people. I'm out there teaching until the last couple of conferences because I couldn't keep going because I couldn't walk from point. I I would be Mm -hmm. walking to class and I'm running late and people, can I just have fun? And I couldn't rectify my head. I must stop and give you information. Even if it's to say, I'm so sorry, I'm late to class. Can you come with me or find me afterward? And I would go find those people and give them something of me. So to run back to my room to eat chicken fingers was a safe place because I Mm -hmm. I could not accept that I couldn't carry anymore. At the same time, the last couple of years of my teaching, I was going out of my mind with anxiety. And Mm -hmm. and we had just had our first child and I, I went bananas and I could not I couldn't, I mean, people don't know this, again, if they listen to this that, that are familiar with me, the first major conference I taught at after our son was born, I was on medication for anxiety and, and, a, and a pretty heavy dose. Every night of that conference, I would go back to my room, take my meds, try to go to sleep. I would wake up in the middle of the night because I could hear my son screaming. It was so real. And I would, I would get up, I'm coming, I'm coming. I walked right into the TV and the console in the hotel room. And it took me damn near Jesus. 20 minutes to realize where I was. And I would, have to, I would have to sit there and do mindful thinking and breathing. And you, you are not at home. You were in this city doing this job. You're here. This is where you are. This is what, and, and then I would be up. And, and the heart rate, the blood pressure, everything, it was like getting hit by a truck. And then I would have to go out and be David Bird to all these people. And they wanted the best for me, and I had to give them the best. And by the time that conference was done, that was the first time I went home afterwards, and I said to my wife, I can't do this anymore. I can't carry my burdens and be responsible to give the best to these people who are there seeking it. But yet, when I went back to the next conference, my absolute goal was I must give them the most. I must do the best. And not because I'm David Bird and I'm amazing and they're lucky to be in the same room with me. It was because... This is what people need. And, and there's going to be a person just like me, a student just like me that comes up with their hat on their hands and says, I'm six months away from bankruptcy. Can you help me? I didn't really get that when I was a student. So this is like, you know, parenting, essentially. My, my career in education <laughs> is like parenting. I'm trying to make up for the mistakes of my childhood, so to speak. I didn't, you know, I got it from some teachers, but very minimally. If I would have, you know, what I could have been, I could have been more close to the reality that you think I had if I would have gotten the proper support when I started business, but I didn't get it. And then I had an opportunity to become that for people. And I said, 100%, I will do this. Do you feel like you choose to carry more than other people are putting on you? I certainly choose to carry things when people aren't intending for that to be the case. Yeah. I think that was, that was actually what I was asking. So I'm glad that it, I'm glad it, but it's, it's implicit. Uh, Of course I'm biased. I'm trying to protect myself. I don't think I go out of my way to do that. It's implicit when somebody walks up and goes, Hey, you know, Hey Matt, I love your work. Yada, yada. That's one conversation, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody comes up and says, 
hey, you know, I know you're so great and you got to, and you're really busy, but could I just have, can I just ask? And when you do that, the question isn't, how do you use the mixer brush in Photoshop? The question <laughs> is, how do I save my business? How do I achieve my dreams? It's just, it, that's ultimately whatever words they use, that's what they're asking because they believe my reality is one where I know all the answers and I can solve all problems and I can't. So I, I imagine that those questions haven't gone away. No. Because you, you have a you have a following on social media and you have a presence, even though it is it's definitely tapered, your presence has tapered off social media over the last two years. One hundred percent. But you still have a nuking it from orbit. Right, right. <laughs> nuking it from orbit. You still have a presence and you have people that uh, seek your approval and that seek your advice, right? Have you thought mm. of adjusting your message? in order to take a little bit of the onus off of you. And that when people ask you something like that, say, look, I can't fix it for you, but here's what you could try. It takes so much of the ownership of their decision off of you. It does give them whatever tools you may have. And I would think by extension would lower your stress level in that you're not as invested in it anymore. So, I do precisely what you're recommending. Of course you do, because I'm awesome. Sorry. Right. Of course <laughs> no, you are. Sorry. Yes, you are. You're the leader of your tree in, on indoor. <laughs> I, I do it, but I do it at the, the end. So because I know how impactful and important it is. When somebody walks up, they're nervous, they're scared, they need advice, they need help. Again, I'm not famous. They walk up and talk to me like I am, Right. And I know how important it is to, to them. You are, you don't get to decide if you're famous, you don't get to decide. Everybody else decides that. See, and that, that is an absolute <laughs> truth that the, the real famous people that you've interviewed on these, these episodes, which again are, are brilliant to me because you're taking real famous people and showing them as humans. And that, that it was just mind boggling to me when I started listening to the show. When these people come up to me and I'm larger than life in their mind, my first thing is to reach out and become human to them. Mm -hmm. And to become human to them does not mean I open up by saying, now I can't help you, but if I, you know, if I were to suggest something, I approach it from, hey, I'm human, let's, let's shake hands, tell me your problems, let me help you. And then at the end, I tell them, here's what's important. I've given you information. You're excited. You're going to get home and then you're going to doubt is going to start to step in. Only you can navigate that. And whether this flies or fails is on you, not on me. So I do my disclaimer at the end, which is a way to try to appease the anxiety in my head of I'm not responsible, but it, I will be damned if it never works because then I inevitably hear from them again going, Hey, it worked. Or I hear it's not working. Do you have more advice? And I feel obligated to help. So you know that through my company, uh, I've gone to all these trainings on people in crisis and uh, suicide prevention and stuff because it's a fairly large company and has a, a culture of wellness, right? Yes. So they, they've put me through all these trainings, which is, it's kind of, it's a thing that's starting to, to take over in the country. But to have a company say, hey, we're going to put some training towards people's mental wellness and towards, you know, any job is stressful, right? So they want to protect their employees. So I go to all these trainings and I've had to deal with people at our company um, on a pretty regular basis, unfortunately, that are mentally ill, that um, are in mental health crisis or that are actively suicidal. Those people, undoubtedly, when I 
make contact with them and talk to them could die tomorrow Mm -hmm. from suicide, right? I will talk to them. I will get them to a place that I feel like they're safe, a place that I feel like they're going to be in a situation or get them to the resource that they need, knowing full well that I have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. Knowing full well that if that person decides to die by suicide tomorrow, that's a decision that they've made. I have short-circuited my brain to go, here are the skills. Fly bird. Because I can't, if, if I carry that with me, even an hour after the conversation that we've had, I will be a mess. You have to learn to do the same thing. I don't think I will ever be able you to can. do it. You can, trust me. Because you are an empathetic person. I get that. So am I. I was programmed to be that yep. since a child. Yep. So how do, you, how do you undo 40 years worth of programming? By recognizing that you can still care about the outcome without bearing the weight of the decision. And and I you know and and I hear you because there are certain elements that I can certainly logically subscribe to like and this is a easy way out but I give them a certain set of advice mm-hmm. and and you know other other industry leaders in education are famous for saying this if you follow the system perfectly then I will feel ownership toward your results. But if you decide to muddy the waters that's on you. And they are able to advocate responsibility immediately. And I've learned to kind of do that by saying, here's my advice. And when they come back, it didn't work or I didn't, I didn't, you know, succeed. What did you do? And I'm able to help them identify where they went wrong because they made their own choices. But I try to still reinforce and encourage that you should put something of yourself. My, Mm -hmm. my word is not doctrine. It's not written in stone. You have to make it your own. But success or failure is your own. I lived that from the very the very first time I became a teacher. And I found out I was a teacher. I made a, a Facebook Live video post. Again, feeding algorithms instead of creating artwork. <laughs> and I, I 100% thanked the person who gave me the job. And mm-hmm. I said, but I said, we, we would not be here. I would not be here had it not been for him. But our success and our failure is on us. Yes. He didn't give it to us. But he gave me an opportunity. And still to this day, even though I do not teach for him anymore and most likely probably will not, I still say that my career began thanks to what he gave me the opportunity for and all the opportunities from there on out. So I I think you need to adapt that and say, you know, I am giving people this opportunity. When we're done with our conversation, I'm no longer responsible for what they do with that opportunity because then you have still helped have not hindered, and you don't actually have to own anything because odds are if they fail, it's because they did something in addition to whatever you discussed. Because And and also, there's a good chance that if they succeeded, it's because they did something in addition to what you discussed. Right. Which is why when they come to me and say, it worked, thank you so much, David Bird, I say, I didn't do it. Right. You did. Right. But if you're going to say that about the success... You have to say it about the failure. <laughs> I, I, I didn't. I didn't, I, I didn't my, fail you. I didn't fail you. <laughs> you no, did. <laughs> I go, right, because I want to. I I look at them because I immediately my heart opens up, my soul opens up, and I say, "I know you're hurting. Let's fix it." Yeah, that's empathy. Let's find David. a way out of the dark. That's empathy. Right. That's empathy. So, you to, can, you would can, you not? If you live and breathe empathy, it's just who you are. Would you not try to protect yourself from the outside world so that when you, when it's when there is no more to give inside the inside the cup when there's not a single drop of water 
I can't give anymore until I fill it back up. That's when you take a vacation. <laughs> New kid from orbit. That's what I did. That's, could you imagine? Could you imagine if tomorrow I'm just like, I quit. <laughs> could, you, could you imagine? I would start sending a lot of, of care packages to your wonderful wife to be like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Can I help? I mean, and, and you're in a much different situation than I am because you're a creative sure, and sure. you're, you know, you're a business owner, but like, I, I, I like to believe that if I was ever fortunate enough to do what I actually want to be doing and was responsible for working for myself, that what I would have to do is I would have to treat it as if I wasn't my own employee and, and, and treat it more like, okay, I need a break. I need a break. And up to this point, I've been fair to myself, maybe even a little unfair so I'll take a break, but that's not an indictment on my hopes, dreams, goals, and the way I provide for my family. Like, I just need a break. And that's what most people do when they work for somebody else and take a vacation. That's what that is. It's not like, right. you failed. Right. Yeah, yes, uh, right. manager, I would like to put in for a week off. That's because you're a fucking failure. <laughs> like, no, it's not. I mean, it's, I just need to, to rest. <laughs> I want to see the ocean. Dude, there's right there. I, 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 Amano, it's right there. I live in a world of make-believe. That's a, that's a YouTube short series right there where like – you know, you, it's almost like a, a HR video. Like if you're, so you could do the shot a where the, uh, the boss is like, Oh, I know you've been working really hard, Zach. Okay. Of course you can take a week off. And then shot B is like, you're a fucking failure. You and like pushes the desk over and shit. And then the HR rep comes back in and is like, so when you're managing your team, do you choose ting a or ting B? And then when they're like, uh, I choose B. And then the HR buys, cause you're a fucking loser. And then it cuts out like, Oh dude, I would watch that every way to Sunday. I mean, Especially because at my company, there are both managers. They're like, when my child was born, I took three days off and here you want 12 weeks. But like, well, I mean, I birthed the child yeah. and I didn't even take yeah. time off. It's like, well, I, I, I want my kids to love me, sir. Like, and that would be ideal. I'd like to bond with my children. Do you know the, yours middle names? No. Okay. Weird. Let me, let me ask because, and, and I'm, I'm being legit here yeah. because not only because, you know, we're talking about this because you have a lot of, again, experience in mental health. Something that my wife has been doing for the past three, four years is she constantly keeps pushing me. You need to take time for you. Mm -hmm. Like you need to go, go play video games for an entire weekend. Like you're 12 again, like do something. You need this break. You're losing. It. And I, I cannot give myself permission. It drives me nuts why to do it why because i need to be doing something for them i was raised to be in service of others and i need to i know there's stuff to do in the house i should be spending time with you i should be spending time with our children i should be working i should be i don't have time to play video games i don't have time to go camping in the mountains for three days so the other five days of the week that you're doing all of that stuff are immediately <sighs> negated by the fact that you took a day off yes you yes, are it, an idiot. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> that I is agree. Not, that is not healthy thinking. Uh, I'm in crisis and yeah, I don't know how to yeah, fix so, it. So, so by thinking that way, you are doing them more of a disservice than you are by playing Jedi Survivor for 18 hours. 100%. Yeah, yeah. And that's what my wife yeah, keeps telling yeah. me. And I keep looking at her and saying, no, you're stupid. Let me tell you why. Yeah. And see, that's that. And, and it probably is, is, a, is a sign of a highly motivated individual. But again, a sign of a person who is taking on more than the people who they're taking it on from expect them to take on because it's unrealistic. You have to be willing to say, I worked my 80 hours this week 
I get to for myself. And to a degree to show that I, I he can be taught. I, I've, <laughs> I'm, I'm learning because aside from anxiety and still to this day, I mean, even this morning I woke up and had to spend about three or four minutes after a horrible dream. I'm like, I'm, I'm in Denver. I'm not in this horrible place and this is where I'm at and that kind of thing. I, my wife is able to sleep through anything. A bomb can go off and she'll wake up and then roll over and go right back to sleep. A mouse farts in, in Iowa and I hear it in Colorado and I'm <laughs> awake and I cannot go back to sleep. And we learned very quickly after our son was born that if I don't sleep, I go, that's really not good for mental health. And I, and I went bananas. Yeah. So I'm at a place now where, and, and, you know, and a lot of parents make adjustments when they have young kids, but my wife, again, the MVP, she sleeps in, in my son has a full size mattress in his room because he sleeps with her. And now she, the baby sleeps in the same room and she takes care of them all night long. And she, she's a wonderful mother. She's incredibly gifted. It's, it's a, an inherent trait inside of her. And I sleep downstairs in a small little guest room far away so that the sounds that I hear in the middle of the night, I can tell myself they're not real. It's all in your head, right? I sleep with a fan right next to my head and earplugs to try to convince myself I didn't hear somebody breaking into the house. I didn't hear my child screaming. The The end of the world has not happened. You're just, your chemicals in your brain are stupid. Mm -hmm. So in that regard, I have learned to do that because I know that I am no longer of use to my family or to anybody that needs me if I am bananas. So I, I forgave myself needing to be the special snowflake that has to sleep in a private little room furthest away from all the people in the house so that I can actually sleep. I still feel like shit back for that. Like my kids have people over and I'm going to be, oh, daddy's got to go to his dungeon to sleep because he's <laughs> bananas. Have, have you ever thought about reframing it, thinking of it from the point of view that they don't need you for any of those things? No, because my job is if somebody is breaking into the house, what if somebody's coming? I mean, but they're not. And they're not going to. But what if? But, but they're, they're <laughs> trust me, they're not, and they're not going to. Statistically, David, let's talk. Let's talk Brother. as scientists for a minute. Statistically, sure. the odds of you being the victim of a home invasion because you're not a drug dealer or a criminal. Can I jump in yeah. one real quick? Because I, I have to say this: you use the word scientist, yeah. and I want to say, back off, man, <laughs> scientist. <laughs> The first time I ever got to say that, and it was like, it's accurate, was the best day of my life. I believe you. I Are believe you, Alice, currently menstruating? Uh, so <laughs> the, <laughs> the idea to me, like, so, so scientifically, most home invasions, the, the cause is uh, a person who is already involved in a criminal lifestyle, um, a drug user, or someone who owns someone else money. I don't know what your current financial situation is, but I know at least two of those things are not accurate. <laughs> okay. So, so odds are you are not going to be the victim of a home invasion. Mm. Okay. It's just not going to happen. Stop living your life like your home is being invaded. That's not healthy. So, right. And, it, and it's not going to happen. So let me jump in because yeah. this is something I do see a therapist and this is something yeah. that the therapist and I have talked about a few different times. He's associated the title PTSD, and I immediately said, no, I, I, that's, that's for folks who, who go to war and so forth. But it's and not, that, though. Yeah, it's not. So, yeah. right. And again, it's my, I, I'm not that important. I'm not that important to have PTSD. When my wife and I, and I, I, you know this story, but when my wife and I, way before kids, our first home, she was sleeping on the couch with our dog because our dog was not feeling well, and I was up in our bedroom. I just happened to wake up 2 o'clock-ish in the morning like you do. And I'm like, I'm out of water. I'm going to go downstairs and get some water. Mm -hmm. I walk down. I'm in my underwear. I walk down the steps. I'm about to turn into the kitchen and standing right there on the other side of the glass door 
the motion lights were on in the backyard, were two men with the yellow ties for a truck. And at the time, the police, the Des Moines police, were looking for two men. They had been breaking into homes, tying people up, and doing horrific things using those truck ties. And I had my phone using the light of my phone. I immediately put the phone against my chest, backed up into the living room, called 911. And then Bethany did not hear me because I wasn't talking at the top of my, I was whispering to the, to, to the dispatcher. And then when I looked back into the kitchen, they were gone, but the light was still on. So I went to the front windows and they were walking down our driveway trying to come into the front door. So I, I laid down on top of my wife and she was like, no, I don't want it. And I'm like, shut up. The house is about to get broken into. <laughs> and I told the dog to be quiet and they walked around. They went to the street. Long story short, the police got there 10 minutes after I made the call. They, they saw them coming and ran into the woods and they never found them. From that day forward, every time I hear the slightest bump, whether it's real or not, I'm like, I have to, I'm vigilant. I've got to get up. I've got to protect. I can only do this because... We are such good friends sure. and I love you sure. so much. Sure. That entire exchange shows me that you shouldn't be worrying about protecting them because you're going to fuck it up. <laughs> I shouldn't be worrying about protecting them. What? <laughs> because you're going to fuck it up. <laughs> you had a giant fucking dog and you told her to be quiet. You, you were whispering you, so as not to disturb the burglars instead of being like, yeah, this is dispatch 911, right? Yeah, the cops are a block away. Yeah, fuck these guys. Come get them. You're like, hey, hey, we're going to be dead soon. Can you send a policeman to recover our bodies? Pretty much. And <laughs> and I, I'm pretty sure I identified to the dispatcher. I have no weapons in the house except a lightsaber. <laughs> so, no, I would not be able to, to help. Um, like... This, folks, this dog was a fucking Akita. They're trained to kill. But you knew Sasha. Blessed her. She, but they didn't. That's but true. They didn't. That's true. She would have licked them to death. She wouldn't have bit them. She would have licked yeah, them to they death. They don't know that. That's true. They don't know that's that. True. And sure, if they would have saw a big ass dog uh, through the glass door, maybe they would have thought twice. Or heard one or, sure. you know. Yeah, and Sasha anything. barked like yeah, yeah, five yeah. times in her entire life. So she was not dependable yeah. in that regard. Um, <laughs> if we had a Chihuahua, the Chihuahua would have been barking its head off, but, but not our Akita Husky. Um, no, uh, I, it, I, I kid though. I kid. No, I, it, I know. So, no, okay. Know. Let, but, but if we're still looking at it from a scientific point of view. Sure. It's very, very rare, right? Sure. You've already had yours. So, sure. so it's not going to happen again. Sure. You know, just, I mean, and what are the odds, honestly, that that hap would happen that, that time? Right. You know, I mean, that was a, incredibly rare. But that in itself feeds into it because- what the, the, the logic loop that broke me was I just happened to wake up. So to me, it's divine intervention. It's magic. It's so now when I just happen to wake up in the middle of the night, I, I have to balance logic. Was this just a random occurrence or is God waking you up to protect your family? And that's literally the dichotomy in my brain that I get stuck in a logic loop instead of going back to sleep. And then 10 minutes later, I'm up because I'm awake and forget it. Try thinking of it this way. Like, regardless of what society would like for us to believe, most people can protect themselves. So the entire thing doesn't land on you to constantly remain vigilant. One of the things that we learn about in some of the chains I've been to is that one of the reasons, um, like, police officers, prison guards, dispatchers, they all die at a really young age. And one of the reasons that that happens is because they're, if you, if you envision it like a car, 
and your RPMs, right? You mm-hmm. know, that that's mm-hmm. bad if your RPMs run really high because the car's not shifting. It's being put under a tremendous amount of stress. Mm-hmm. So all of those people in those careers, their normal is, let's say, 8,000 RPMs. Mm-hmm. When they're calm, it drops down to like 5,000. Normal for a normal normal mm-hmm. is 1,500, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So they're running their car at 8,000 RPMs. And then yeah. even when they relax, they're only dropping down to five. So they burn up really, really, really fast. And it's because of that insane, because it is insane, idea of hypervigilance. Because they're taught through their training and their experience that they need to maintain a hypervigilance all the time. The data does not support that. Yeah. The data says a bad thing could happen. It's far less likely that it will. But they're trained and trained and trained and trained to, to fear this, 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 this uh, uh, imaginary evil, this, this, this silent evil that's going to come out and get them. And no matter what job they're in or this terrible thing that's going to befall them, does it happen? Absolutely. Horrible things happen all of the time. But the data shows that it's far less likely to happen than it is to happen. So I, 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 I apologize for interrupting. I agree with no, you. No, no, no. 100%. That type of logic is very difficult for me to anchor to. And here's an example. Mm-hmm. And and I'm, I'm, I mean this seriously, but it may or may not sound funny. Is it, sure. does the data support that Pennywise the clown is actually going to walk into my bedroom when I'm eight years old? Ah, crap. Yeah, it does. Okay. That's, <laughs> Sorry. I, I had to follow. I had to follow for a second, but yeah, yeah. So, right. Does the data support that Pennywise is going to walk? Because I was eight years old. Yeah. And because of a wonderful imagination, it's a curse too. Mm-hmm. Right, sure. So invasive thoughts are, mm-hmm. in a way, a foundation of a hyper-creative because you have invading thoughts all the time of creativity, right? Mm-hmm. But they also come with a dark side. So now having children, and I, this is straight up honest, like this, this, is the, this is the world that I navigate every 24 hours of, of my life. I don't, I don't sit down it does not, ha- it, it, it's invasive. It just happens. I don't go, mm-hmm. oh, let me think of some horrific images. When I hear that sound, I can see my little boy standing there as some man walks into my house. And then my brain starts projecting images of what would happen to my son. And I go from zero to I will fucking murder the world if you touch my child. And then I'm up and I cannot, I have to break that cycle in my head almost every morning, <laughs> like I have to break this cycle of these, horrific, we went to San Diego, our first family vacation uh, w- when we just had our son and it was five hour drive from Phoenix. My wife was super excited to go to San Diego. I was very excited. I love the ocean. She really loves the ocean and it was going to be great. Mm-hmm. I was, anxiety was a horrible challenge at that time. I was on medication and so forth. Mm-hmm. Aside from driving through the desert when it was 125 degrees, on the drive, they're asleep in it's the car. It's a dry heat. I know. They're, they're in the car asleep. I am calculating the entire way. I knew every gas station. I knew every place to get water. When we got to San Diego, I literally had, and, I, and I, it's serious, I had an escape strategy in case Kim Jong-un launched nuclear missiles toward LA. Because at the time, they were, North Korea was threatening all this stuff. And so I had a plan. I knew how fast we had to get out, everything. Like that was where I was. Now I'm able to say to myself, 
Kim Jong-un is most likely not going to attack San Diego while we just happen to be there. But when I wake up at three in the morning because I hear a loud thump through the walls of the house, I have to go investigate. And, and we have, for any listeners, we do have weapons and we have cameras all over the house outside. And I'm able to see your stupid <laughs> ass walking. The is electrified. And I've got, still got that lightsaber and it's one of those really nice ultra sabers and I will beat your ass with it. So while I apologize doing it. <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry as I hit I'm you in so, the face. I'm so sorry. And I'll I'm probably taking, still make I'm totally the, taking the onus. I would make the onus the, of this entire action. I would make the, light, the lightsaber sound effect with my own mouth instead of letting the device do it for me. Anyway. I I see. And, and I think the first logical step of trying to break that thought process is going, Kim Jong-un may launch nuclear weapons at San Diego while we're there. There is nothing I can do about it. You are absolutely right. And that's that's the advice of my therapist. Like how yeah. you can't control, you are worrying about things you cannot control. And and the, the right. thing that I tell myself, when my father passed away, um, I'm one of those people that like, I put my emotions on hold during crisis. And mm. and I just, I become, I, in a way. I, super healthy. I talk. Super healthy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sensing that you're using sarcasm here instead of praising me for wonderful yeah. mental health practice. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, take it how you want. <laughs> uh, to me, like I, I, I become, I become Optimus Prime. I, I must lead. I must, I must protect. I must do whatever. You know, my family had been through the ringer, and everybody, you know, one by one, they had left, and and you know, siblings took my mother home, and so forth. And somebody had to stay there until the the funeral home could come and pick up his body. Sure. And they were going to prepare his body, and then and then he was flown to to where he was buried, uh, the state that he was buried in. I immediately, I just said, I'll stay here. So I stood in the room with my father's body covered mm -hmm. in, in a blanket that my, uh, his, his stepmother had made for him and just stood guard over him. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, I literally said out loud, time is precious and it must be spent wisely. And it was like this, this divine wisdom. Mm -hmm. So now, when I talk myself off the lunge, so to speak, at three o'clock in the morning, I tell myself, your resources, your mental energy is a resource. You are spending it right mm -hmm. now creating things that aren't real. Yeah. You could be spending that resource right now sleeping, dreaming of happy things, playing a video game, cooking breakfast, making coffee, going to work. Do you want to spend your resource on phantoms or do you want to spend your resource because time is precious and it must be spent wisely? That is the cycle that I repeat like a mantra and it breaks it. And I'm able to come out of it. And because I'm able to do that, when we go to San Diego again and take two kids, yeah, I'm going to be nervous mm. that, that I'm going to be more nervous that the kids are going to do something stupid like, look, dad, I found a jellyfish <laughs> or whatever, right? Instead of worrying about nuclear weapons. And, right. and that's well, probably when we'll get attacked. Yeah. And then I'll be like, I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the, here's the thing. It's, it's kind of twofold. One, so I was always brought up by my dad as you're the guy, the man of the house fixes things that are broken, right? That are broken, like mechanical things, oh, okay. like man things, right, right? right? So I, I try to do that a lot. I have never experienced such a freeing feeling as the moment I realized I'm not good at that. <laughs> I'm just, you know, there's some basic things that I can do. I put our dishwasher in last night. Like I can do basic stuff like that. But when it comes down to an actual project, I'm not good at it. There's nothing I can do about it. I need to hand it off to somebody else. 
And immediately the first time I was like, I'm a failure. And then I'm like, or I make really good money. I can pay somebody to do that. And there, then this is the twofold part. And then I can spend that other time mm-hmm. that I would have been doing that, getting frustrated, getting angry, fucking up my house and making it cost way more money. Mm-hmm. I now have free time and I can use that free time to do something I like doing. So what if you wake up in the middle of the night because Taken is happening and um, also <laughs> Keanu Reeves is outside in your driveway. So you wake up because that's happening and you can't go back to sleep. Why don't you play a video game then? If you're going to be awake anyway, you might as well use it to do some of those things that you feel like you're stealing time away from to do. You're awake anyway. So I hear you. And my answer is, is should be obvious. I do get up and sit in front of a computer. I watch tutorials on marketing, on Google AdWords, yeah, on business strategy. Dummy, dummy. You can do that tomorrow. And I think about playing a video game. I think about working on the board game that I've been developing for four years. And it's at this stage, this is how fucked up my view is of the great David Bird and my celebrity. The mark that I think I'm going to be able to leave on the world besides being the dad of two amazing children is leaving a board game behind. Not my career, not my artwork, nothing, a board game. Because I, 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 this is a game I want to play. Mm-hmm. And some of the best video games out there are ones created by a small team of people who go, we just want to make a game that we wanted to play. Mm-hmm. We didn't set out to be rock stars. Mm-hmm. And I'm not setting out to be a rock star. But instead of spending time at three in the morning working on my board game, I'm working on my business. And, and I've told my wife this, and this is true, and I welcome your input, my friend. I've told my wife, I said, once I hit $100,000 again with the business, I'll be able to rest. So when you're spending, I mean, that's a great goal. I would love to make $100,000 as well. Um, so I'm not going to poo-poo that goal at all. <laughs> but uh, so after you've spent your sleepless night that you're having because your brain is lying to you, yes, as what happens with mental illness, right? As you've spent your sleepless night toiling away at your computer, doing something you don't particularly enjoy out of a sense of obligation – Yes. When you wake up the next morning, how does that make you feel? Like shit. Yeah. Okay. So if you could wake up the next morning somewhat refreshed because you did a thing that you enjoyed doing and you could have a little bit more patience for your kids and your wife, if you could have a little bit more joie de vivre Mm -hmm. uh, upon going to the studio because Mm -hmm. you were able to just kind of carve out a place in the night that you're going to be awake anyway. And then you can watch that same video at the studio if you want tomorrow. How would that make you feel? Uh, Worse. That doesn't make any sense, David. And it's true. And here's why. My father was a great man. He had his flaws, of course. And I very rarely speak about them. The one that I speak about the most to just a very select few people is I, I talk about visions as a child. One of my visions that I constantly have in my head is him shaking his index finger and saying, you need to learn responsibility. That you know, would often come because I didn't mow the yard because I was too busy playing Legend of Zelda Link to the Past for the hundredth time playthrough, right? Or drawing a comic book or doing anything but my responsibilities. When I wake up in the middle of the night and I were to sit down and play a video game and I go upstairs to see my kids, I would be miserable. I would be mean. I would be bad because I was being irresponsible. But when I wake up middle of the night, I do some Google AdWords research, some marketing practices, write some notes down on my OneNote for a strategy for the next campaign. And then I'm dead ass tired when I go upstairs. I am able to instantly be happy dad 
because I was working. I was providing. I was doing my responsibility. Are you happy, David? No. Okay. So I love your dad. Great dude. I uh, would give the shirt off his back to anybody or 12 pounds of crab legs, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> At the bowling alley. Uh, who knows more about responsibility for you, your dad or your therapist, your wife, and your kids? Yeah. I hear for responsibility for, for you. And if you're not a happy David, you're not going to be a happy dad. You're not going to be a happy businessman. You're not going to be any of those things. And you, your therapist is absolutely 100%, 1000% right. You need to carve out time for you. Bethany is right. You need to carve because by carving time out for you, you are carving time out for them. So he, my therapist, again, an incredibly talented individual. He recently, we had this discussion and, and it, you know, it, it didn't come out. Of, it wasn't like the inciting question that started the session. It was mm -hmm. born out of it. But because sure. I identified it before I realized what I was saying, essentially what I identified was if I were to die, all of my thoughts center on my poor children and they won't have their dad to protect them and grow up and teach them and my wife and all these struggles and whatever. And he finally said, but what about you? Like, yeah. you're going to be sad. Right. That everything you didn't get to do. Mm -hmm. That never enters into my mind ever. That is how I know that there is something fundamentally wrong in how I view the world, how I view responsibility, which is another reason why I nuked my career from orbit, <laughs> because I could not honorably look people in the eye and say, I trust what I do, because I'm so screwed up that the thought of saying, don't get me wrong, if I, and I have fantasies about this, and I, uh, go with me on this, it's not, not as naughty as it sounds. <laughs> when, when my father was sick, and, and I would drive back and forth from Phoenix to Iowa for the, over a year. There was this little town in Oklahoma that I had to go through that Google navigated me through. And it's a little town square. There's a train that goes through, gaggle mm -hmm. of houses. There was a Casey's there. And I would stop and get pizza because I love Casey's pizza. And I would have this fantasy for the first couple of years of anxiety after my son, during pregnancy or first child and then after he was born, that I could just go to that town, buy a little house, get a job making pizza at Casey's and disappear. And nobody would ever know and I, I could just leave the world behind. And it was like an ASMR safe haven of just wanting to live in that world because nobody needed me. And I wasn't responsible to anybody but me. And what that would be like again to be that, to be that person that, and, and even before my son, you know this, I would wake up every morning, make a pot of coffee, sit down at my desk and edit a picture for an hour. Mm -hmm. Not because I was paid to do it, not because I had to do it, because I loved doing it and I practiced my art. Right. I don't do that now. To sit down, when I come to my studio, it is murder. And I've tried it and it drives me nuts to sit here and open up a picture and just edit it for fun because it's a waste of time. I have work to do. I have responsibilities. People need me. They need you to edit for fun. They, they do. I, I mean, that's... It took me a long time to understand that too. And Jenny pushed and pushed and she's like, every time that I've said, I'm going to give up podcasting or every time that I've said, I'm going to give up photography right. or every time I'm like, Hey, I'm going to sell my cameras. I'm going to sell my Xbox, whatever. She's like, well, then what are you going to do? Like, well, I'm going to be responsible, but yeah, but what are you going to do? Yeah. Like you, you need something 
you know, and you already have this stuff. It's not like you're going to go out and it's like, you have to go out and buy it. I'm like, right. oh boy, she does not look at my Amazon enough. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and it's like, then what are you going to do? And I think right now you're at that spot of you've jammed yourself up so much. You need to start figuring out what you're going to do. And I, I hear you. And I, again, the blessing of an overactive imagination that I would <laughs> rather live in that world than living in reality. My mind is always creating ideas. I, I haven't uh, discussed this with you, but this is an idea that I am 100% doing because it is my come hell or high water, my fulfillment of a responsibility, which is to do what my therapist and you and my wife and others have told me. So I've got an idea for, just go with me on this. <laughs> I've got an idea <laughs> I'm, for- I'm YouTube. excited now. Now I'm and excited. I, I've got an, an idea for a new YouTube channel. <laughs> Um, oh boy. <laughs> you know, I haven't published a video in over three years to that channel. And I just got about 75 subscribers last month. And I have You know what? Go fuck sorry, yourself, sorry, sir. Dude, sorry, dude. Sorry. <laughs> so sorry. So sorry. Jesus. So sorry. I've lost my ass. Oh, I know what I know what you're I know what you do for fun. You, you minimalize Zach. <laughs> That's what you do for and fun. So you make Zach feel like a yes, you are. Yes. So Apparently is, made, is your yeah. height uh, uh an even number or an odd number? My height? Yeah, your height. It'd be an even number. Oh, well, it depends. Are you going by foot and inches or inches? Or are we going by the imperial system or the metric? Yeah, <laughs> like, I guess it just depends. depends. If, if it, like my initial answer to you is even, because I would say five foot six, six would be an even number. You're killing my joke, dude. I was saying essentially that I'm an odd number because I'm five foot eight and you must be an even number four foot because you certainly aren't six. So <laughs> anyway... Um, I don't know why you did that, but it's mean. Yeah, because I'm trying to keep up with the comedy here. <laughs> you are really funny. Um, and that's <laughs> that's true. Uh, so yeah. I, I have an idea that I will tell you about offline because I'm actually going to go ahead and do it. And I would welcome your opinion about the YouTube channel. But it requires me to go spend time in the mountains, which these Colorado mountains mm -hmm. are. I always said I wanted to retire here. And mm -hmm. it requires me to go into the mountains spend three or four days by myself with my Jeep Cherokee once I get it back, once they find a fucking transmission for it, and then <laughs> use my skills as an artist, as a creative, as a photographer, as a videographer, and be able to create something that I have taken great comfort in during my worst moments of anxiety over the years. And I will tell you about mm -hmm. it offline. So I am trying to practice. So you're going to tell me about it. You're going to ask for my opinion so that you cannot listen to any of it. Got it. Uh, you and my friend Bill Hull <laughs> should talk to each other. <laughs> Uh, Bill, my friend Bill, uh, is an incredibly intelligent human being for a lot of different things, but also he has a great amount of expertise in corporate America, how business works and so forth. He was very high up with a couple of companies over his career. At his recent 40th celebration of his 20th birthday, I got a shirt that uh, was the Webster's Dictionary of Ask Hole. Yeah. And, and it said essentially that I'm going to ask you questions that I have no intention of following what you tell me to do. And I wore it at his birthday because um, I'm famous for asking him advice and then being like, yeah, no, I'm not going to no, do that's that. That's not for me. And then, not for me, thanks. And as a matter of fact, I actually just talked to him yesterday because I, I had a, a wonderful meeting with another person that I admire greatly in this industry who essentially told me, hey, some of the challenges you have in your business right now in Denver, you are 100% going against the grain because you're following what other people have told you to do. Your ideas, your instincts were spot on. You should be following it. And I called Bill and I'm like, guess what? So-and-so said this. What do you think? And he's like, I've told you this a hundred fucking <laughs> times. And I'm like, yeah, but what do you think? And he's like, okay, sounds like a good idea. Great. Can't wait to see you do it. I'm like, I'm going to do it this time, Bill. I believe in me. It's exciting because it's a new 
person. They're shiny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but first, I got to get the stationery, and I'm going to work on the logo, and then, I and gotta, then the colors. I got to watch at least six YouTube videos that'll tell me the same thing, but then I'm going to find some minuscule part of them that I don't like, so I'm going to discount everything that they've said, because I didn't like the color palette to their back fucking wall, because I'm David Bird, and God damn it, I can't be happy. <laughs> Okay, but uh, okay, for real, like, and, and you've got to keep this into the show. Tell me that it does not make me an asshole human being that when I'm watching a YouTube video in the first 60 seconds, if they're like, hey, everybody, this is David Bird, and I'm so excited to, oh, wait, let me open Photoshop real quick. Uh, so, uh, okay, so today we're, um, we're going to learn about that. At that point, I'm like, shut the fuck up. Get off YouTube, you piece of shit. It's like, did someone come in and start recording you as a surprise? <laughs> pretty much, pretty like, much. Like, you knew much. what you were here to do, right? You could have had it. Yeah, and you, yeah no, 100%. 100%. Drives or, me or people that talk and, about... They'll talk about something completely unrelated or they'll walk you through a process of like, oh, go to your uh, system tray and find uh, Photoshop. Like, yeah. no shit. You think I'm looking yeah, yeah. like I'm looking to find out how to do frequency separation. I don't know how to open Photoshop. Yeah. But see, now you made me mad, David. Now you've got me all Sorry. wound up. Sorry. Wound up. Sorry. Okay. So when I was I'm seven. Ask, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to ask you a question. I, I feel like we have more than covered the idea of what failed and surprised you that it failed. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> I feel sure. that we've give me something that succeeded that surprised you. Oh boy, um, my teaching career. Yeah, uh, both at the conferences and the well, the first workshop that I ran in Phoenix that you came down to. Yeah. I I was floored. I was at a conference. I took a leap of faith and said, you know, there's there's X amount of seats, and the first half of the seats are this price point that was just mm -hmm. under a thousand dollars, and the other half is above a thousand dollars. And before I could finish the speech, I sold out the tickets, mm -hmm. the cheaper tickets. And then I sold a few more after the higher price. Yeah. Honestly, children. Yeah. I, I didn't want to be a dad. And, and I, I, I was an uncle when I was 10 years old. When my friends were out figuring out the difference and exploring the difference between boys and girls, I was changing pampers and watching Beauty and the Beast. And as a teenager, I knew that through my father and through the type of human being that I am, that if I became a dad, I would cease to be David. I would always be dad. And that I knew I would always worry about these kids until I was in the ground. And that's how very much I feel. And you can, you can have a whole show with my wife if you'd like, cause she'll tell you everything <laughs> that I, I fought against it. And that, that wonderful woman endured a lot of bullshit from me. I told her my son will hate me. I, I, th they won't like me. I'm this, I'm that. And my son, his world revolves around his mother, his imagination and me. Yes. You told me the same 100%, but I couldn't see it. I couldn't believe it because of responsibility. I knew I knew the the baggage that I carried into that event and the tremendous responsibility it is to be a parent. And I just could not see risking that over that little life, you know? Do you and I should have I should this is a question probably should have been asked a half an hour ago because mm. it's loaded and I know that. Beauty of editing. What's that? The beauty, beauty of editing. editing. Yeah. David, do you think you're smarter than everyone else? No. No, not at all. Then start listening. I hear you. L no. Yeah, you're right. You do hear me. Listen. So, not to me. Not to me. I'm a no, terrible example. No, <laughs> but I know. to the other people. <laughs> like, th this goes back to something that, that's wonderful advice from you. That to, For me as a teacher, to be able to look at somebody else, give them information, and then be able to say, but it's on you now, and walk away and advocate responsibility in mm -hmm. my head. 
This, it's in reverse. You can give me all the advice in the world. Am I going to come after you and knock on your door when it's wrong? No, I'm not. I'm responsible. So people can say, no, David, it's not going to happen that way. No, 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 no. And I look at you and go, you can talk at me. All That's the key. And I mean this with respect. This is something that I learned that was very valuable to me. People, a lot of people talk at me. Very few people talk to me and with me. And you talk with me. There are many people that talk at me. Oh, no, that, it starts just like that. Right. Let me tell you, hey, you, Zach, let me tell you my worst fear that I've been agonizing over. And then, oh, no, 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 no. And I've been dismissed like that my entire life. Right. Even endeavors of, I believe I can fly. I believe I can do it. Oh, no, 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 no. Icarus, just sit on the ground. <laughs> you are like, yeah, you can fly, but here's what's keeping you from doing it. And that very rarely happens for me. So I have spent too long with too many important people in my life trying to defend and justify why, even why I feel the way I do before I can even be at a place to accept the advice and apply it because they're right. You are right. But I have spent so long trying to prove that I have the right to be who I am, especially in a world of hyper creativity. Mm. And, and I mean this with all due respect to my, my, my wonderful father. He grew up in a world where you... This is a, a personal story that I don't mean to say to disparage his memory, but when I was in high school and our family was, was struggling financially, I, I wanted to go to Hollywood, come hell or high water. I didn't want to go to college. I wanted to go to Hollywood. And when I finally got into college, I went two years after I graduated from high school. I get in and I, I immediately pursue a theater degree. And my father tells me, you need to also get a teaching degree because to be a school teacher. And then when I got out of the job, and I wanted to move to Chicago and become an actor. He told me, and I, I'm in my early 20s. He told me, you also need to get your truck driving license. It's a, because they make great money. It's a weird connection. And it's a secure yeah. job. Yeah. And while you, and you can pursue your other goals. And he would be encouraging. You pursue your other dreams. Pursue your dreams. But you need to do this first because this is safe. I would spend so much time, and he was the leader of our household, defending. But dad, I want to do this. Yeah. And then I would encounter people. I encountered, if I would have encountered a Mr. Miyagi early on in my career, <laughs> things would have been vastly different. But I encountered people that I strongly believe in, whether this is arrogance or not, I, I don't give a shit. Because to me, it's real. I encountered people who went, there's something special about you. You're really gifted. I'm going to put you under my foot and keep you there. Mm -hmm. And my problem was I trusted them because I was raised... Everybody is innocent until proven guilty, even if they're standing on the other side of my door with truck straps about to break in and kill us. <laughs> I couldn't see the forest for the trees. And unfortunately, I found my way too often into the tutelage of people who were dishonest, wrong, bad. And I learned too late. Mm -hmm. And it, it created scars that now when I come to work, I have more, I, I wear a suit of armor that is so heavy to carry that it's stifling the creativity inside of me. And I would give anything to be that kid again, not, not a child, but to be that spirit again, to be that creative again. And I, I have not found my way to it. And the, the bad thing about that is, again, like I'll preface it by saying, I love your dad. Like he was always yes. super awesome. He was me. a great man. That was, that was terrible advice. That was not advice that fit. That was a shoe intended for a completely different person. That did not fit your situation at all. So let me say this, and, and please keep this there, because... He, like me, had an incident where he dared to fly higher than the sun and it failed miserably and it devastated him and he never recovered. 
he he 100% was clinically depressed, mm. but he he was a proud man of his time. Mm-hmm. Sure. If if John Wayne and Andy Griffith could have a love child, that was my dad. <laughs> so there was no way he could ever admit to anybody that he was fallible right. because he had to be protective. His mother passed away when he was 12 and he was the eldest. He yeah. had three two younger sisters and his father, my grandfather worked in the coal mines. He was gone and unfortunately he was never there. My dad had to take care of his sisters and process the grief of losing his mother when he was 12. He became right. a protector. He spent too much time in my life telling me, don't fly too close to the sun. And not because he didn't want me to fly higher than him, not at all. It was he was trying to keep us safe. Right. I live a life now where because of my same scars that he has, my same failures, I'm trying to keep my family safe from me, <laughs> you know, well. and my lack of responsibility, so to speak. But yeah, because you're so irresponsible, David. You're a piece of shit. I, I am, dude. I am. <laughs> no, I'm no, thinking I, about, I, I, I don't more, know. I just meant more the, the message of like uh, the truck driver, like of all the things, yeah. <laughs> you know, that just, yes. it's not, it would not fit. There's no way, there's no way you're ever going to become a truck driver. It's just not going to happen. Now, uh, a video store manager, <laughs> at the time, those were never going to go away, right? Those yeah, were always right. going to yep. be there, you know. I mean, that, that, and DVD will that was uh, that was far more realistic. It was a it was a steady income. It was uh, insurance. It was all the things that you needed at the time. That makes more sense, you know. Uh, working at Wells Fargo, that makes more sense. Yep. A truck driver, that was a big miss. He swung and he missed on that one. Yeah, we yeah, can't get did. him one hundred percent. We can't be one hundred percent. Right, that's true. Could, you know, you know, but that was a big swing and a miss. It just doesn't make any sense. So from now on, you will always be going to be the bandit. From now on, that's the only thing I'm going to refer to you as. <laughs> I'm in a hot pursuit. <laughs> Jackie Gleason was. I he, oh my god, I love that movie. All right, so. The the thing here, David, is that it is my sincerest hope that these conversations will continue to be as open, honest, and vulnerable as as our conversation has been today. So I, I sincerely appreciate you being willing to come on today and talk about everything. Because I think one of the biggest problems that we have is that our society refuses to acknowledge that people are human anymore. Yep. Yep. The lack of humanity that, that we see in, in our society is just broken. And just the idea from when Tony and I started this show was always to just show how everyone is human at the base, whether it's an industry professional, whether it's a, someone with a hobby farm, whether it's someone who has been in the military, whatever, that everyone is at their core, a human being that has struggles, trials, tribulations, interests, loves, hates, all the things. So thank you for being so open and honest with us today, because I think without that type of conversation, there's absolutely no point in doing this show. I, I agree. You, you have achieved something in my mind, again, using a phrase that's important to me, you are showing people that their perception of your guest's reality is vastly different from their actual reality. For me, to hear people that to me are literally celebrities talk about being human, the human joys they have, the human struggles they have, not, oh yeah, when I did this amazing project, I'm so amazing. No, they're like, dude, I got to pick up my kids. I got to go to salsa <laughs> practice. Like I'm tired. You know, I'm more, I'm worried too. Like they're human. And it, it changed my reality. It didn't necessarily change my reality perception of their reality. It made me go, my God, they're just like me. They're no different than me. And and that that has such incredible value that I, I applaud what you and Tony have created. And 
I hope to see it continue. Thank you. And that, that, that truly means a lot to me. You know, you know, I've always looked to you for creative guidance and, and we've always kind of been at the same basic places in our lives, but at different levels at different points. And it's always been nice to have you to, to bounce creativity and creative ideas off of. So I, I appreciate, I very much appreciate that. I think it means more to me than you would ever know that you would say something that overwhelmingly positive about this, because this this is different to me than any other project I've ever worked on. And it was different even before Tony's passing. Like it was something that I chose to take a risk on. I'd never taken a risk before, you know, because it's really easy to do a podcast in your basement. It's a lot less easy to decide I'm going to spend money on this. I'm going to travel the country for this. I'm going to make some sacrifices to make this creative thing that will never make me a dime. Let's be honest. It'd be great if it would, but it's never going to. So I decide did to make this something different. And I hope that eventually that comes to fruition before we leave. <laughs> like things got fucking heavy in here, man. Like, yeah, and, and I love it, but no, 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 don't apologize. I love it. I, I love it because I think it's important. Like that the, to be able to like bust each other's balls and tell jokes and, and, and crack wise and be silly, but at the same time, really get into some serious stuff that bores down to who you are as a person. I said, but we would be remiss if we didn't talk about your most recent project, your new endeavor, Legend. Yes. Tell us about it. So my brand and studio in Denver is called Legend by David Bird. Right there was a wonderful, uh, a wonderful example of the challenges of this business. I did not want to ever call any of the work that I've done as photographer, David Bird photography or anything of that nature, because it's not about me. It's about the clients and the people that... We all work together. Oh, you're adorable. My original brand was called Dream State Photography. My second brand was called Reality Reimagined. And this one is called Legend by David Bird. This is primarily- You're finally getting it, David. You're finally getting it. I, well, because I was <laughs> I, I was browbeat by people. And like you, I was spending a lot of money to, to restart. Mm -hmm. And so I chose to follow who I perceived as my betters uh, for some of those uh, elements of guidance. This brand right now, the genre that I focus on is boudoir. But really what I'm learning as I'm exploring and developing this business, it's about, this brand is about storytelling. Yes, it involves central photography. And why I chose that, I've never wanted to be a boudoir photographer. And I have many wonderful friends who are amazing, very financially successful business uh, boudoir photographers. I didn't want to do it. I've certainly photographed my share of sensual imagery, but I didn't want to, my central imagery was speaking to what I found sensual and erotic as a heterosexual male. And I, I've taught this and go with me on it. I teach that boudoir is akin to a great horror film. The best horror films are the ones where you never see the monster till the very end and your imagination builds so much. And the same way of shooting a series that is a human being in various states of undress, it's about, and I, we used to tell our wedding clients when we offered boudoir long ago, that I don't care what, you could wear a t-shirt that's covered in gravy stains and holes and greasy, but if your eyes communicate sensuality and power and story that I can follow, then we're off to the races. So legend is about that. A lot of my work over the years has been about storytelling. I teach storytelling and how to access it using our background in theater to be able to teach photographers how to access story. When I decided to return to selling portraits uh, to clients instead of doing commercial work and all the other things that I've done. I said, I'm not going to do high school seniors, which I'm, I specialized in. I will never photograph another wedding as long as I live. <laughs> and I don't want to do headshots or anything like that. I don't want to do high volume work. 
And I said, boudoir is one I can get behind because the money should be spent before they walk through the door because nobody should want cheap boudoir photography. I Speaking to the battle scars earlier, nobody's mm. going to walk in and say, I love your work. I wanted to come here, but I was obligated to go to the shit boudoir photographer downtown who charged me three grand and is a predator. Right. I should be able with this genre to reach a goal. And this is important to me. And it is the goal for legend. I should be able to reach the goal, which is to be sought out to be hired as their artist. My client will hire me as their artist, not their portrait photographer. They trust me as an artist to create vision with them, not to take, oh, I just, I want you to just do whatever you think. No, you, I tell your client, you need to tell me not what picture you want, what pose, what lighting. You need to tell me why you're here, what you want, what's your story. And then I'm going to help you find ways to access it. And then we're going to create it on set. And you should be proud when you walk out of here spending $3,000, not because you got portraits taken, you got art created for you. Right. And that was the goal. With any business, regardless of how noble your intent is, <laughs> you have to navigate all the muddy waters of business. And that's how to, how to, to make people feel comfortable in six seconds or less to stay for another six seconds on the website or the ad or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then also knowing... There's a wonderful photographer in our industry who's an incredibly talented individual named Joel Grimes. And when I first saw him speak, the first thing that he said, and I turned to my wife and looked at her and like, if, if we could have been shining lights of joy and happiness that we had just had somebody affirm to us that all of your pain is for a reason. His first opening graphic said eight times. And he said, shoot market, shoot market, shoot market because it takes eight times for a client to convert. They have to see your work eight times. When you're cold calling a business, you gotta cold call them eight times on average before they'll convert. So shoot market, shoot market, always create, always market, Mm. because that person is silently engaging, and when they hit the eighth time, that's when they answer the ad. That's when they hit the contact form. That's a really hard thing to hold on to when you're watching the money drain, and it's not coming in as fast as it's draining, Mm hoping silently people are following. That's why when I wake up at three o'clock in the morning, I'm looking up the merits in 2024 of, do you run Google ad campaigns? Do you do TikTok? Do you, is Facebook dead? Like, how do you do all these things to convince people that what you do is not just worth their money, but that it is a great artistic experience to engage in? And that's what I do. Thus far, I've had a blast because some of the folks I've worked with, they come in expecting the word empowerment. I'm going to do, I've always wanted to do boudoir because, you know, sometimes it's the naughty reasons, Mm -hmm. but a majority of the time it's because they've had a milestone in their life where they need to be reminded that they have value, but they think they're going to come in and do some yoga poses in their skivvies and then get some nice little pictures with natural white light because that's what boudoir is to them, right? It's that vanilla, so to speak. When they come in here, by the time this experience is done, and this is, this is not my word. This is what's been told to me by my clients. It's a transformative experience. Because it's about storytelling. When I photograph people on set, I treat them like a director would an actor. I give them a scene to play. I don't say, now put your hand here, now move your elbow a little bit there. Okay, now look at me with those sultry bedroom eyes. Ooh, you're so sexy. I don't do any of that. I tell them, one of of my go-tos that is so wonderful to watch as a photographer and as a human being, I tell them, and I, I have a strategic lighting pattern. I know how I'm going to frame it and compose it. I'm going to get my tight middle wind to try to sell. But I lay them, have them lay on their back. Female. Laying on their back, backlighting, creating some nice shadows. I, I describe the action first. I say, I want you to take your index finger 
of your dominant hand. And I want you to touch your forehead and go down your forehead, down the bridge of your nose, touch your lips, touch your chin, all the way down your throat between your ladies, and then let it drift away. And they'll do it, and they'll do it in the most mechanical, <laughs> medicinal, boring way. And I say, okay, great, we're gonna take that again, and I literally use the word take. I don't say, oh, we're gonna do that again, or oh, that was good, but let's, I say, we're gonna take that again. This time, mean it. And I say, close your eyes. Remember the first time you were touched that way? And they kind of smile and giggle, and I'm like, I know, I know, and I'm like, but now, commit. Remember what it felt like. Where was your excite point? Was it on your sternum when they're between the ladies? Was it on your lips? Where do you want to be touched? Remember it and do it. And they'll take a breath with me. And I literally say action. They do it. And like that, I've got pictures they've never had before. The experience is transformative. They got to remember their own value, remember their own passion, their own power. And I captured it. And when I sell $3,000 worth of photos to them, and they walk out, I feel like a million bucks mm -hmm. because I made a difference. I told their story. I helped them tell their story. And that's what legend is about. But right now it's struggling, being completely transparent and honest. We, we moved to Denver in April and the business really went online in October because we had our daughter in June of 23. And I have been so focused on the business aspects of it because the creative aspects are already in the can, so to speak for me. And right now I'm I'm in that realm of how do you educate a market that vanilla ice cream is boring and they should go for the rocky road? How do you educate them that a heterosexual male is safe to come in and be photographed by? How do you educate them that, yes, if you want a great transformative experience, it's going to cost more than 300 bucks? Volume and testimonials. Yes. So one of my go-tos I'm holding up on camera is a gift certificate that is beautifully made with beautiful stationery and beautiful envelopes, beautiful uh, little wax sticker seals that has an L in it for legend. And every client that comes in here is given a gift certificate that gives somebody a free session, no free anything beyond that, but free hair and makeup, free session. And once they come in and have their transformative experience and the person who gave that gift certificate, they get, they get to come back and have a second transformative experience a second time to tell their story. Because I think there's no better way than somebody who walks out of Disneyland and says, my God, this was amazing. You need to go. Because that starts the first time they're engaging and then I gotta wait till number eight before they book. <laughs> right. And in the meantime, I got pampers to buy and food to put on the table and anxiety to quell with being successful financially again. Well, and you know how the internet works. The more times you post things on the internet, the more attention it gets because you're consistent, consistent, consistent. So that's where the volume comes in. The testimonials are the part that make it safe for people. You know what I mean? I agree 100%. Yeah. And the advice I just got from a dear friend of mine, a person that I look up to, which was one of those moments that to show you, again, as a human being, how far I've... Uh, straight from the the course, the the path. How 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 I've forgotten to use my wings as Icarus to fly. I have been so focused on social media ads mm -hmm. and learning everything that you can learn, which is which is a never ending Pandora's box of a hellscape that I'd never want to be involved in. Right? No, and they're completely unreliable. But they work because you can't trust you can't you can't trust the stats though that they give you. Like you, right, you don't know until you they know. work, yeah. and they are a silver bullet because I. My betters, I've seen their financials, and, and they work. However, my friend that I was talking to, who is a photographer and teacher and educator and wonderful human being, she asked me, she goes, I went to your business page for Legend, and it's dead on Facebook. 
And I said, yeah. I said, because the people that I'm talking to and getting advice from and mentoring with, their Facebook pages are dead. And Facebook's kind of dead now. Like nobody engages. And she's like, who doesn't engage with Facebook? And immediately I said, well, teenagers don't engage. And she went, are you hiring teenagers? And I said, no. And I said, but <laughs> that's old information. The kids are on the, the kids are on the Snapchats and the TikToks now. They're not on the Facebooks, right? <laughs> Only old white people are. And then I went, wait a minute, I am targeting 28 to 55-year-olds in all my social media ads, but I don't post a single thing to my Facebook page because I was told by my betters it doesn't work for them. And then I said, but I have blog posts. And she went, yeah, I saw that on your website. Your last blog post was three months ago. And I was like, well, I've been focusing on the ads. And she's like, so people, the only way they can engage with you, the first time they engage, that one of eight, like Joel Grimes, they're engaging with an ad that says, hurry now, act now, buy now. Pressure, pressure, pressure. Instead of going, I had so much fun telling this person's story. Look at this beautiful artwork. And the moment she said that to me, my jaw hit the floor. And I, again, I saw my father's finger going, you need to learn responsibility. I went, my God, what am I doing? I built a whole career that I torpedoed from orbit <laughs> off of sharing everything on social media. And more importantly, one of the greatest consistent compliments I always get from people is when you post to social media a picture, your artwork, you don't say something which I despise, like, check out this killer shot, so amazing, I used hashtag canon, hashtag list lens, hashtag whatever. I say why I did it, why the person brought it. I explain the art, and everybody loves that. And then I went, this is a godsend. I've known this for a long time, and I threw that right out the door because I was so focused at 3 o'clock in the morning on learning Google AdWords. What about if you treat it like journaling? That's precise. <laughs> you are an intelligent human being because that's precisely what she just told me and literally used that word. And she said, can you not journal every day on your business Facebook page, not just the artwork you're doing, but the business itself? Be transparent, just like I did years ago by reaching out to my clients and saying, hey, we're excited. We want to build some business and keep going. And you can help us by referring. Share the journey. Yeah. So Hold on. I'm going to let him yeah, out because yeah. I want you to finish this thought. Then I'll think I'd tell him to be quiet if somebody was trying to break in my house. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> I'd be like, fucking bark. That's, that's a big dog. <laughs> yeah, Sasha was a big boy. He was big boy. Anyway. He's a big boy. Yeah. Um, so yes, that's, that's yeah. precisely what um, I had this meeting Friday night. And then yesterday I had to have lunch with friends. And then I have this today with you and, I chose to take the day off today because it's 60 degrees here and there's a lot of work to do in the house. Nice. Normally I take Mondays off. Um, but tomorrow I, I'm getting here at the crack of dawn. Like I typically, I'm awake at the crack of dawn. And I'm, I'm instead, of, instead of trying to capitalize a little bit more sales for Valentine's Day of 2024, I, I am wise enough to know, don't keep kicking the can down the road. Stop, take a breath, reset, and then go forward again. And... This time doing something like this, I told my wife yesterday, I said, there is an, there is a f instinct. There's a feeling. There was a TV show. I don't think it survived two seasons uh, and it's, it's not relevant, but the, the point here in the TV show was in, in this, the world of these characters, there's a door that will appear when it's their time to transition. Um, they're, oh, they're, they're a yeah. ghost, a vampire, a ghost, and, and, a uh, a, a, a young woman oh. who can see them. They all live oh, to being, being human. Yes. Yes. Uh, Sam Witwer. Yeah. I made it several seasons. It did. And it was actually a, yeah, it was, it was a, a remake of a, a show, um, from England, from Britain. Right. Like a, right. An Americanization of it. Yeah. No, it made it, I want to say like three or four seasons at least. 
When I saw that show, I watched the first two seasons, I believe. And in the first seasons, when they when they reveal the the MacGuffin of the door, and that when that you see that door, you got to walk through it, and that's like your one shot to get into eternity. And when I saw that, I quickly remembered, and this was years ago, and I had written a story when I was a kid, because I was so convinced that if if I could just push on the veil that was invisible in this reality, if I just pushed enough, I would open the veil to another world. That's the world I lived in, in my imagination for years and years and years. I was convinced that if I could just believe hard enough, I could fly. When I talked to, to her the other day, my friend in the business, and I guess I could call her a mentor because she's offered that to me now for free, which was like, I told her I can't, she, she gets paid money to do this. She said she wanted to do it for free. And I'm like, I can't honorably accept that. And finally, I took my own advice that I had learned in not being cheap and said, yes, I will go ahead and take your gift. Thank you. Um, Sometimes people just enjoy doing things. That's David. literally what she told me. She said, it will make me feel good. She's like, I don't offer this to everybody, but she and I have known each other for a while. And she was like, I, I want to see you succeed. And, and I was like, oh my God, you're like me. Like you're, you're a nice human being. Jeez. Like, okay, I'll, I'll take it up. Even though it it sucks. <laughs> I will give my shirt off my back to anybody. But when I, somebody wants to give it to me, I'm like, fuck no. Like I'll give you some money. Right. <laughs> so long story short, when I talked to her a couple days ago, I saw that door again. It's not open. I saw the door. And you got excited. I did. I got excited in a way that I haven't felt in a long time. I know that feeling. I feel the same way about this. Right on. Right on. Because there's there's something in the ether that tells you this is worthwhile and it has value. So don't don't lose it. I think, and I think to bring it full circle, because I think this is an important distinction to make about legend by David Byrne. <laughs> that <laughs> that <laughs> As, as a child, you immersed yourself in world building. Yes. In storytelling, right? Yes. In Boudoir, you found an idea for a market that it was no longer about cheesecake. It was about telling a story to make something sensual. Not necessarily erotic. Right. But sensual. Yes. So that not only would men find these images sensual, but women would too. And that they would see it as being, this is empowering, this is sensual, this is sexy, because I think it is. This isn't a thing that I'm doing for him. This is a thing that I'm doing for me because David can build a story and he can make me feel a thing while we're doing this. And that thing will carry through to when they hang the photos or they put them in a book or they present them as a gift or they keep them for themselves. It's no longer just a TNA presentation. It's no longer a, oh, um, things aren't so great at home. Maybe if my husband can see my areola um, and, and my hair, big hair, and, and it's not a fucking glamour shot. Yep. It's an experience. And I can promise all four people who are hearing this right now, I can promise them <laughs> that I've worked with David enough to know that the experience of shooting with him it is an experience. It's fun. It's a craft, not even crafted. Like a lot of the stuff that happens when David shoots models or subjects, it, it's it's happy accidents. It's shit that just happens in the moment. And it's fun. What you're buying, you're not buying a photo. 
you're buying a few hours of your day where you just get to go do something fun. And then you also have proof that it happened. Yes, precisely. You know, you're, bu- you're buying the fucking roller coaster picture. Yes. Only these are in focus yes. <laughs> and they're not shot with a three megapixel camera, and, right? And you don't look like somebody put a cattle prod up your tush. Right. Unless that's what you're into. Unless that's what's around. <laughs> we don't, don't photograph know. that. Here. I don't know. Unless that's, unless that's what's essential. <laughs> not that kind of shoot. Like, like, like well, maybe we don't actually photograph the cattle prod, but maybe the result. I don't know. Whatever you do is what you do. Okay. You, who are you, David, to tell these women right, right, right. that you will no longer empower them? That is a very patriarchal decision that you would be making right there, David. And I want you to slap that out of your own mouth well, right now. And speaking to that element, one of the things that I have been working very diligent on for the past few months and... Uh, I'm saying this very respectfully and carefully because it's a, it's a topic that I think is important and I want to do it right. Instead of just photographing, because you think boudoir, you hear boudoir photography, you think of heterosexual women. Yeah. Yeah. Assigned at birth female. Oh, sure. Yeah. No, I don't, but that's I'm, because I'm more, I'm more, more open-minded than you are, David. So me trying to get <laughs> down on your way, way, way down to your level. <laughs> I've started opening my mind and and setting up business practices, the right marketing. There's so many moving parts that goes into a business to do something right for a topic that I think is and a need in our society that is very important. Opening the door to say you it's all based on you have a story to tell. Right. And your story may not be a C cup and Victoria's Secret lingerie. Your story may be a man that needs to, a heterosexual man, uh, however you, you your, whatever your sexual orientation is, not relevant, but opening the door that transgender, mm-hmm. non-binary, everybody who, mm-hmm. who has got a story to tell, and, and it isn't about seeing the sensuality, it's about having power, having confidence, because to me, that is sensual, that is powerful, that is erotic to me. Well, the place that it always ends is what's sensual sensual to them. Like if you're telling a good story, it's not paint by numbers photography. You're, you know, and I kind of alluded to that and I, like, I didn't purposely leave off because I think boudoir is for everybody. It it really is. I mean, it's, it's for everybody. It's, I had been meaning to say something to you like, dude, you need to shoot more dudes. Yes. Yes. Like I really do. And and that's that go across the board. Like it's just it seems like women like having their picture taken more than than guys do or they're more open to like various genres and stuff, but you need to shoot some beefcake, man. Like some dudes that are sensual, some dudes that are like going to sell you some underwear. I have. Good. And 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 I have and and the worst term in in this photography genre is dudewar. Oh yeah. Because the know. implication is you got to be a man and be something different. I have photographed yeah. men completely nude and they're looking for a certain story to tell of their mm-hmm. their physical acumen and so forth. They're looking for sensuality and sexy. I photographed men who come in wearing a suit. And they're holding a whiskey mm-hmm. glass and a cigar because that's how they feel sexy and powerful. That's their story. That's sexy as shit. A, 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 Straight up. a woman in a power suit is sexy as shit. Whatever makes that person sensual is what is sensual. Prescribing to some kind of cookie cutter is how you get Sears Portrait Studio. Yes. Is how you get glamour shots. This is what you are going to get. And I promise you, if you buy a package, you are going to get something no one else will get because it is going to be you. Correct. It's going to be tailored to you. It is your story that, yeah, some of the poses may be similar because people's bodies move the same way. Right. But ultimately 
you know, when you, when you used to go and see glamour shots, it was the same stupid pop collar. It was the same hairdo. It was the same like Better boa. soulless dead yep. face, you know, you, whether you're, uh, whether you're a guy, whether you're, uh, whether you're a girl, whether you're trans, whether you don't even prescribe to anything, you're going to get however you are comfortable in front of that lens. I promise you that's what you're going to get because that's where David does his best work. You are unique and so are we. I have seen David take photos of people that weren't comfortable. I, I think that's fair, right? Sure, sure. Those, 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 were, those photos don't look good. Yes. David now makes people comfortable. That's what he does really well. That's, yes, you are unique and so is David's style and approach to everything. And that's why we've been friends for 25 years. Right on. And thank you. I don't know anybody like this idiot. I really don't. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. And to me, the one of the, the buzzwords in marketing for boudoir is empowerment. And you just used it a moment ago. Sure. From the very beginning, even when I was working with my betters, setting up all the aspects of this business, I 100% said, I, I do not want to use the phrase, come in here and be empowered. And I say this in uh, in all the, the video content that my clients see, copy that's sent to them. I do not believe a human being can empower another. Only you can empower yourself. But this photography session is the catalyst. And that's what you have to bring. That's what you bring as my client. That's what you have to be prepared for. This isn't a portrait session. This isn't glamour shots. You are being given an opportunity for that door. And you can walk through that door and tell your story. And it's a beautiful and terrifying thing sometimes to tell your story and to live it and to be it. And to walk out of here with the roller coaster set of pictures from it as proof that you didn't is why I'm in business. And that makes me, I, I said to my wife as we were considering this, as I was considering this genre, and this is kind of my button end to what I'm doing right now for my work. I said to my wife, I said, I can't do boudoir. We have children. They will never be able to come to my studio because they're going to walk in and see all these sexy photos. My son's going to bring all of his friends when they're 12 to daddy's studio every time because they get to see all these photos. And I said, and she goes, why can't they? And I said, because that I, I, I'm not going to explain to my kids that their college fund is paid for because daddy shot smut. And she looked at me and said, if that's what you think, you have no business doing this job. And I, I saw the cast iron in her and I went, okay, what, what did I do? And she said, because you have an opportunity to teach your children body positivity the value in beauty, the value in sensuality, and that dad has changed people's lives. That's why their college fund was paid for. The moment she said that, I was like, all right, I have an honorable goal. That's what I'm going to do. And it's been hell <laughs> trying to get there, <laughs> but it's one that I see the door and I, I'm getting ready to open it. And when I do... I will once again fly. Thank, thank you so much for for coming and talking to me today, David. I, I miss you. Yeah, me too. Uh, hopefully, friend. I'll hopefully uh, I'll see you here in a, a month Three or two. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, right. absolutely. All right, thanks, buddy. I love you. Love you too. Tony Forsmark. <laughs> <laughs>